Welcome back to the Revolution and Ideology podcast. I am Jared. I'm Nick. And we are back uh, with another episode. And uh, today we're going to be focusing on the 20th and 21st century in Iran, a century of oppression, but importantly as well, resistance. And we're going to be talking about this uh, historically. We think it's definitely very relevant. And we do think many of uh, our listeners and potentially new listeners uh, would do well to learn a little bit about uh, recent history in uh, Iran. I want to start today with a super interesting quote that comes... Hang on. You're not going to talk about your personal connection to this? I wasn't actually planning on it for this episode. I was going to try and remove maybe any personal bias here, but I guess Nick has kind of let it let it out at this moment in time that uh, I, I am uh, of Iranian heritage, or at least half Iranian heritage. Uh, my dad came over uh, to the United States in the 1970, late 1970s, uh, so it makes me, I suppose, check second generation Iranian-American, and uh, I still have uh, a lot of family uh, living in Iran right now, um, and I love them dearly. And uh, and I may dig a little bit more into that personal part of the story as we kind of go through this 20th and 21st century. Uh, but thank you for that, Nick. Yep. <laughs> All right. I, uh, I wanted to start with uh, an interesting quote that I located in research I was doing, not even directly related to uh, Iran or anything. It's another topic that we're super passionate about, the Zapatistas of, of, of Mexico. Anyway... In one of the works, one of the interrelated writers um, that was also focusing on the Zapatistas is a, is a man named Jose Saramago. And I'm not going to go into all of this gentleman's great work and, and even really discuss the easy land of the Zapatistas a lot. I just like a quote he found when he was uh, considering um, this notion of otherness, of foreignness, of being like consistently deemed the the outsider, the the enemy to Western culture. And it's an interesting quote. He uses... Iranians, or in his word, Persians, sometimes Persian and Iranian are now used interchangeably. They are more or less the same as the 21st century uh, uh, carries on. We could go back to the ancient world where not necessarily the same, but now pretty much Persian and Iranian are interchangeable. But he uses the word Persian to identify Iranians. And this is what he has to say. To be Persian is to be foreign, different, in short, not like us. The mere existence of Persians has been enough to upset, confuse, disorganize, and generally throw a spanner in the works of our institutions. Persians may even go to the intolerable lengths of disturbing the very thing all governments hold most dear, their sovereign right to rule in peace. And I love that because it speaks to the kind of revolutionary ethos of what it means to be uh, an Iranian or a Persian. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to come through in a lot of what we learn about this history of the 20th and 21st century here today. What were your thoughts on that quote? I don't think you've heard that quote. You've heard me teach a lot on Iran, but I'm not mm -hmm. sure you've ever heard that quote before. I think it has a lot to speak to sort of any kind of subjugated peoples, or any, to use Gramsci's word, right, the subaltern classes anytime. That's what it means to be, in fact, that's kind of the defining characteristic of what it means to be any of these people. And definitely the Persian people, their history is full of this. So for sure. Yeah, shout out to one of my former students. They know who they are. They reminded me of this quote because I had forgotten it uh, until very recently. Anyway, um, 
back to the the story here. Now, I would be probably a little bit remiss not to mention the ancient history of the Iranian people. Uh, we, I guess I can use that now since Nick kind of let that out. We are some of the founders of what civilization is in human history. Um, and much of what our Western civilization considers Western actually started in Iran. So you all can kind of thank us for that while also ignoring us. That's a whole different story. But some interesting things such as simple things such as postal systems um the road system that rome used yep the persian empire actually had it first and then it was copied by greeks and then taught to romans all of those types of things actually started in iran empire building statecraft provincial rule um in fact the world's first human rights document known as the cyrus cylinder that actually promised freedom of religion to subjects as well as abolished slavery was crafted by the persian king cyrus the great as he expanded his empire. He also happened to uh, free a very famous group of people known as the Hebrew uh, from their uh, unjust rule under the Babylonians and allowed them to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple and and gave them the right to do so, uh, which informed his idea or the ideas on freedom of religion. Uh, I emphasize that because it also kind of coincides with what I mentioned. Yeah, it was the Persians that, for better or worse, we could debate that one, actually, uh, birthed monotheism. Uh, Zoroastrianism, their belief structure, uh, predates Judaism by centuries. And uh, unfortunately for practitioners of the many Abrahamic faiths, if they go back and research, much of what they believe actually was inspired by, if not directly borrowed from Zoroastrianism, things like uh, a duality to the universe and evil and a good and cosmic forces and free will and your choice to choose between that good and that evil and stakes attached to those. If you do good and follow what the one true God believes you or wants you to believe, you will go to a very good place. And if you don't do that, you'll go to a very bad place, etc. All of these things actually started in Iran. You're welcome. Anyway, um, from that point forward, and again, we could do entire episodes on this, and we may in the future because I'm super passionate about it, as you might imagine. But yes, the rise and fall of empires from the Achaemenid dynasty to the Parthians who consistently handed the Roman Empire their ass as Rome continued to try and expand, um, to the Sasanians, uh, again, usually pretty victorious in their battles with uh, the expansionist-minded uh, West to the Safavid Empire, who gave Iran uh, uh, Jafari Shiism, or Twelver Shiism, as the predominant religion of the region. All of these things took place um, over the course of the next uh, century and a half to two centuries. Again, I'd like to spend more time on them, but we really want to get to like this, this, this late 19th, 20th, and 21st century history to really give our listeners some context um, into uh, current-day Iran. Uh, there is, however, a quote that comes to us from the thousands of years I just kind of fast-forwarded through that I think does a pretty good job of coloring um, the Iranian spirit. It actually comes to us from, again, another non-Iranian, um, a, uh, a Lebanese writer named Amin Malouf. In one of his novels, he wrote um, about the region. It's called Samarkand. Anyway, this quote um, looks into three different characters, and they're actually real historical figures, but since it's a historical novel, we'll call them characters. Historical characters and how each one kind of embodies part of the Iranian spirit. So I want to read this quote. Three friends were on a promenade in the high plains of Persia. Suddenly, a panther with all the ferocity of the world in it appeared to them. The panther observed the three men for some time and then ran to them. 
The first was the oldest, the richest, and the most powerful. He cried, I'm the master of these dwellings. I'll never allow this beast to wreak havoc on these lands which belong to me. He had two hunting dogs. He let them attack the panther. They could only bite it, and as such it became more vigorous. It consumed them, attacked their master, and ripped his entrails off. Such was the fate of Nizam al-Muk, who was kind of like the empire builder. The second man said, I am a man of knowledge. Everyone honors me and respects me. Why should I let my fate be decided between dogs and a panther? He turned his back and ran away, least concerned with the outcome of the combat. He had since wandered from cave to cave and hut to hut, convinced that the beast was constantly tracing his steps. Such was the fate of Omar Khayyam. The third was a man of belief. He advanced towards the panther, and with open hands, a dominating glance, and an eloquent mouth, he said, Alan wa salam, you are most welcome in these lands. My companions were richer than I. You had them deprived. They were the proudest, and you disgraced them. The beast listened, seduced. He knew how to approach it. Since then, no panther could come near him, and men took their distance. The manuscript concludes, when the times of hardship came to pass, none could stop his course. None could run away from him. Some were able to take advantage of the chaos, and none knew better than Hassan al-Saba how to domesticate the ferocity of the world. And Hassan Saba becomes one of the most famous revolutionaries of the 12th and 13th century, founding the very famous Order of Assassins, of which, yes, the modern-day video game series is basically inspired by. We need a whole episode on that. On the Order of Assassins? Yeah. We totally could do one. Yeah, I mean, it's super interesting. Anyway, these three things, the intellectual, the revolutionary, the state builder. All of these represent different parts, at least in Amin Malouf's eyes, parts of who the Iranian is. And so I think now without any more of a prelude here, let's dig into the history we want to focus on. Um, so I know we're focusing mostly on the, like the 20th century, but we need to do a little bit of the late 19th to really dig into things here uh, and set the context. So um, after the fall of the various uh, empires that I talked about, at least four of them, especially the Safavid would be like the last major empire of, of Iranian heritage, um, a series of like kind of foreign interloping empires ended up uh, ruling uh, the region, uh, mostly um, from Afghanistan. Um, so for example, like the, the Zan dynasty would be another one of those. Anyway, these weren't really what we would call like empires. They were just dynasties that would rule from a capital and there would be like some sort of loose taxation system to bring other polities like under their rule. Long story short, though, uh, all of our listeners are very well aware that the 17 and 1800s and even like early 1900s that I'm talking about were the peak of the colonial era for Europeans, where they essentially went around the world and took a giant shit on everybody, took their things, uh, forced them into uh, unfair treaties um, or outright enslaved them. And a lot of that was uh, going to take place in the Middle East, although there was a little bit of resistance, a little bit more resistance in certain places like the Ottoman Empire, they were able to withstand it. The Safavid withstood it for a little while until they collapsed. Um, but in Iran specifically, eventually it became not outright conquest by Europeans, in this case mostly the British and a little bit with the Russians, but co-optation. See, what the British and the Russians were able to do was enter into Iran, again, not fully as conquerors, but able to start investing in Iran and in a way putting Iranian leadership, or I should say Zand leadership, in debt. They would get economic concessions, and through those economic concessions, um, they would begin to uh, seize control of basically the infrastructure and the development of the new, newly forming nation state. I actually, when I think of 
this it's kind of soft pe- colonialism, if that makes no, sense. No, yeah, I think that it's honestly it's the very beginnings uh, to me of neo-colonialism. Yeah, oh, like absolutely. they're starting to understand that they can't just militarily just destroy people. That it's much much better to use these subtle economic and sort of social impositions to take control. Well, and a lot of these like Zand and then later Qajar, who was another dynasty that comes along later, uh, a lot of what what took place is these leaders, these kind of corrupt leaders, they're not usually viewed fondly in Iranian history, um, would kind of sell out their own people because they were getting, when I say co-optation, they're getting something out of this by the from the Brits or the Russians, and it's usually wealth, so that they enrich themselves at the cost of their own subjects and the well-being of their own subjects. So they're, they're, they're straight-up sellouts is what we would call them. Um, and eventually they find themselves in debt because they want to, at least in their own minds, compete with the Europeans in terms of riches or being able to uh, peacock a little bit or whatever, floss, whatever, I don't know, what is the 21st century, what we <laughs> no call idea. it? Yeah, what do we call it now? Shit, I don't even know. I haven't anyway, known like whatever. They want to show off, right? Yeah. They want to do whatever they want to do, right? And uh, so fresh and so clean, man, straight outcast, right? Yeah, now Early we're aging 2000s. ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Damn it. Anyway, all right, that's what they were about. And they found themselves deeper and deeper in debt to fund their lavish lifestyles. Uh, some of this led to ceding of like territory, like in 19, or excuse me, 1813 and 1828, they ended up ceding the Caucasus Mountains to Russia, uh, which brought czarist Russian interest into the region. Um, and then of course, again, the British end up showing up as they show up everywhere and do awful things as they do everywhere. Brits. You're pretty cool now, but you you need to understand for centuries, you were the absolute worst. Um, okay. Anyway, uh, no single sellout king encompasses what I'm trying to describe better than a man named Nasser al-Din Shah, who ruled from 1846 to 1896 on the Peacock Throne. He embodied the puppet. He is the architect of the famed foreign concessions that end up replenishing only his own coffers and fund the lavish lifestyle of his throne. A good example of this is in 1890, he granted a monopoly on tobacco cultivation in basically the entire country to one British citizen, a man named G.F. Talbot. And in return, the king, Nasser al-Din Shah, was to get 15,000 pounds and 25% profit on everything Talbot was going to be able to produce, which for the king isn't awful, but basically you sold out the entire country and their ability to generate profit from this very popular at the time cash crop um, for your own purposes. That is ridiculous. Now, the good news um, in terms of history is concerned is it upset enough of the Iranian population. And we have to keep in mind, like when, when the British go someplace and they get some sort of cash crop, that's it's not just exploitation of the cash crop. They're greedy as hell. Like Americans, Brits, all of these colonial enterprises are it, – it's, it's – let me be blunt. Capitalism is based on exponential growth. So a little bit of tobacco is never going to be enough. So when I say tobacco cultivation in the entire country, that means they're eventually going to be seizing lands that grow food by force and then changing those to grow tobacco, which then makes Iran dependent upon England for something as simple as food. That's kind of the goal. That's the colonial enterprise right there. What do we call that? Force dependency, but like yeah. it's more than that. It's like this, it's, I mean, it's a model that's dominant in every aspect of our life, right? If you ask yourselves, why, why am I in student, like, loan debt? Why do I have credit card debt? Why do I, it's forced dependency on a micro scale. The nations are doing the same thing to each other. 
Yeah, and it's to garner, it's to coerce or force somebody into a a point of subservience, and then you can kind of dictate to them the way things are going to go, whether we're talking about an individual in debt because of student loans or we're talking about an entire nation that no longer can produce its own food because it's too busy growing tobacco so that the Brits can profit. I mean, almost like without going into an entire conversation about global economics, this is why countries give other countries aid. It's not like out of the goodness of our hearts, let's give them a loan. It's because then you have absolute control over their economic and social and foreign relation policies. Yes. The British, the Americans, other European uh, entities that that give aid throughout the late 20th or late 19th, early 20th, and even into the 21st century are not doing so out of the goodness of their hearts. This is about control. It's not just control through creating forced dependency, but it's also this idea of spreading uh, a certain way of life, a certain way of thinking, a certain type of, of ethic across the world. What's the term? You've used it before in class when referring to Egypt. Oh, extroverted economic structure. Maybe. And it's not my term. It was this Egyptian economist. uh, What was his name? Gouda Abdel Khalek, I I believe. Anyway. Um, Okay. Back to the story here. The good news is that Iranians responded here at the end of the 19th century. Um, The uh, tobacco riots broke out in response, just flat out riots against the king's choice, right? News made the rounds and the people rioted. I will stress here though that those riots were led by a group of people called the ulema. And for those that don't know, that is the, the Islamic word for the religious scholars. So a group of religious scholars end up being the ones that lead, um, this resistance. And that's important to note because this will be a common theme now throughout the 20th and 21st century where people will be turning to their religious leaders um, for for answers in these various colonial projects. And again, it really it's, it doesn't begin in the 19th century. I could have probably gone back through that history. I just did super fast. I mean, it's there's a rich history here of turning to religious leadership um, for help in um, in beating back some sort of foreign invasive force. It doesn't start then, but I did want to make mention of it here in the 19th century that the religious scholars. Um, do uh, end up responding. And they issue what are known as fatwas against tobacco co- uh, cultivation. For listeners that don't know what a fatwa is, it's basically a religious, an Islamic religious edict, um, more or less like an order that you have to follow, that you just have to follow. It's a decision that is made through consensus of these religious leaders from a, from a city called Qom um, in Iran. And if they issue this fatwa, it is up to you to kind of follow that to basically fall in line a little bit. So in this case, their fatwas are against uh, cultivating tobacco because they know that's going to hurt both the crown and the British. Um, and and it, it's at this point that I probably should take a brief pause and explain that Iran – for those that may not know, is definitely – Islam is the dominant religion in Iran, but it is the minority version of of Islam that is dominant in Iran. In other words, Iran is predominantly a Shia nation, which Shia translates roughly into English as the party of Ali. If I wanted to do an entire history of Islam, I could probably like provide a little bit more context. But long story short, after the death of the Prophet Muhammad, um, there were uh, there was a faction uh, of believers that thought that the next quote unquote leader of the Islamic world must have a blood connection to the Prophet somehow. And at the time, the most predominant person was his cousin, um, almost like his brother Ali. And so, people that began to support Ali's 
uh, uh, movement to become the next caliph or imam um, became known as the party of Ali. Now, the story is much more in-depth than I provided there, um, but essentially from that point forward, and that's all the way back in the 7th century, this faction in the Islamic world has always kind of been the minority faction. So being Shia in and of itself makes one somewhat revolutionary even within the Islamic world. And I guess I kind of want to stress that. And always being the underdog in the Islamic world has led to a lot of martyrdom, which will also inform some of the revolutionary ethic we'll be talking about in the 20th and 21st century as well. I could spend a lot more time there and do it real justice, but I, I want to get back into this other history here. The interesting thing that happens with British soft colonialism in Iran in the 19th century is they bring with them some of their Western liberal ideals. And those begin to foster problems within the country because they're not used to some of these things like mass land privatization, um, overt materialism. In other words, um, valuing oneself or valuing one's kingdom based on their material possessions rather than the relationships they form. Again, it's not that there's no like history in Iran of liking like nice things. That's not what we're saying, but where like your entire identity is wrapped up in stuff and cultivation of that stuff and acquisition of stuff, that very Western notion was alien to the region, that your life should not be ruled by the impulse to consume um, or purchase or own. That, that was a new thing that was brought by the British and a lot of the ulema, those religious scholars found it and to this day still find it quite offensive. And I think a lot of Westerners, like, again, lose sight of that. What? Not everybody in the world measures themselves by how much shit they can buy or like, you know, that's it's very interesting. And it's obviously a very un-Islamic ideal as well. Um, so, yes, materialism, individualism, myopia, those were things that were quite offensive to a lot of the Iranians that the British brought with them. And that will also be a theme when we get to American interventions and they bring more of that. Um... On the flip side of that coin, Westerners also brought with them some ideals that did appeal to Iranians. This idea of constitutionalism and liberation and using Enlightenment-era uh, ideas to free oneself from dependency. Those could be found there. So, I mean, it's interesting that there's like this dichotomy of ideologies making their way into Iran. And eventually it would be this idea of representative republic or constitutionalism that the British, again, accidentally brought with them that would inspire an actual revolutionary movement against the British themselves, which isn't unusual. The same thing happened in India and eventually, you know, famous leaders like Nehru and Gandhi would, would use uh, a lot of Western ideals against the West to liberate themselves. So it's, it's not completely uncommon. The final nail in the coffin for, for a lot of this like late 19th century stuff uh, regarding British uh, colonial or soft colonial power in Iran uh, took place in 1901. It's known as the DRC concession. Essentially, all rights for oil exploration um, and uh, and profit would be given up in Iran for 60 years. Excuse me, not in all of Iran. Let me be clear. If in three quarters of Iran, so 75% of Iran, for 40,000 pounds and a 16% annual return on profit. I don't think I said that very clearly. Long story short, we're in the Industrial Revolution now and oil is going to be now the new like – mover and shaker in the world economy. And it has been discovered that Iran has some of it. And of course, the British want it. So what they do is they negotiate this concession that, again, rights in three-fourths of the country for oil 
are given up for 60 years, and all Iran is going to get out of that are 40,000 pounds and 16% annual return on profit. Here's the problem with the 16% annual return on profit is that the king of Iran, who again, who is just basically a puppet to the British and the Russians at this point, he doesn't even get to review those books. So essentially all of that is calculated back in London or somewhere else, and then he just agrees upon whatever he gets. So there's no oversight here. The British could say, ah, we made two bucks this year. I mean, they obviously didn't, but they could. And he'd be like, oh, that's 16%. We'll take it. What do you think of that? I mean, yeah, it's obviously ridiculous. Um, Nick, uh, Nick, Nick, Nick's not a big fan of the DRC concession, but anyway, well, isn't it? It wasn't even to like the British company; it was to the one man, right, William Darcy. Yes, well, just one man. The British are going to jump in and, yeah. and seize that, but yeah, right, yes. All right, this leads to though everything I talked about. All this context leads to something known as the Constitutional Revolution in Iran. So again, this would be a revolutionary century in Iran. And sometimes in class, we kind of teach it as like this revolutionary century in Iran where like four different revolutions take place. Most people only know about the 79 one, but there's been more. This one takes place between 1905 and 1911. It's the Constitutional Revolution, and it is founded on an anti-colonial stance, complete freedom from outsiders. That will now be a theme moving forward. They want, I mean, again, as some of the groups of people that started all of civilization, they've had enough of Westerners who are a much younger society coming in and telling them how to do something. Get the fuck out of here. You wouldn't exist without us. Leave us alone. Freedom from outsiders, resources for Iran, and autonomy, and most importantly, respect for their beliefs. Again, something that happens oftentimes when Westerners go somewhere is they have complete disrespect for the beliefs and practices of another group of people. We are like the worst guests ever. By now, we have another king in charge, and it is a man named Mozaffar al-Din Shah, and he continued the accommodation policies of his predecessor, of, of many of his predecessor, predecessors, and also continued to live a very extravagant lifestyle. Protests broke out in 1905 after new tariffs were passed to pay off Russian loans for a royal tour. So essentially, Mosafar al-Din Shah goes on this great like European or world tour, and it costs a lot of money for him to go on this tour, and he didn't have it. So he takes out loans from the Russians, and then once he returns to pay back his loans to the Russians, he, charges, he starts charging new tariffs. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. Anyway, these protests break out. Merchants begin to shut down all of the bazaars in the major cities, but most, of course, notably for him, it would be the bazaar of Tehran, the capital at the time. Some of you may be like, oh, wow, they shut down some markets. Isn't that what bazaars are? But I must stress that the bazaar is more than just a market, uh, especially in the 20, or early 20th century here and dating all the way back into, into ancient times. The bazaar is – how can I equate this? What would be a good corollary? It'd be not unlike shutting down like Wall Street in, in, in the modern-day United States. It's not just about being the center of trade. It's also a center of politicking. It is a cultural center. I mean, it is the spot where a lot of things, a lot of the ideologies, the beliefs, the practices, the material and ideal realities of what Iran will be take place. So the Bazaris actually have a lot of economic and thus political power. So when they shut down the bazaars in basically protest, that's a big freaking deal. It would, again, it'd be like, we're going to shut down Wall Street in protest to whatever, something the United States government is doing that we don't agree with. If Wall Street did that, that would be a huge deal. Mm -hmm. So it's very similar to that. 
Anyway, uh, and again, the religious scholars, the ulema, go on strike. So now the bazaars are shut down and uh, religion, or at least like, I mean, religion is obviously still being practiced, but like the mosques are basically shut down. And this is like, this is a major, major thing to happen in a place like Iran. Again, it'd be like churches closing in modern day United States in protest. Um, and, uh, and here's the thing. Uh, the Russians end up being the ones that respond this time, not the British. And so Cossack soldiers end up, during this time of strike, end up killing 22 people and injure another 100 in trying to put down these riots. Uh, 1906, many of the refugees, um, from these riots as they're trying to basically free from the Russian forces, flee from the Russian forces that are being used by the, the king to try and, you know, regain some sort of stability in the country. Many of these, many of these people flee, ironically enough, to the British embassy, which welcomes them in. And it is at the British embassy they begin to have open air discussions on constitutionalism. And it is there that they begin to demand for what is known in Iran and it's still exists today as a majlis. A majlis is basically just a parliament. Um, in the United States, we call it like a senate or something like that, or the congress, excuse me, congress. But majlis, like essentially what they're trying to establish there is a constitutional monarchy. They're willing to leave the king around for a little bit, but he will now answer or at least share power with this majlis. And they begin to make this demand. The demand is eventually granted in October of 1906. And this is the quote. Under the rule of law and the crown became a divine gift given to the Shah by the people. Shah is the Persian word for king. What did this new parliament or majlis seek to establish in 1906? First things first, a secular legislation. Unfortunately, this is going to upset the religious scholars who helped with the protest because they don't believe in a secular legislation. They're also going to seek a judicial code and a free press. And most importantly for Europeans, they began to take on all the European concessions of the past, whether it was for tobacco or oil or really anything else. They're going to get rid of those concessions. If anything is produced in Iran, their goal is to make sure it profits Iranians first, not Russians, not Brits. What do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, it seems like a logical decision. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Fighting eventually erupts after the death of the king, Musafar al-Din Shah, and the Cossacks again end up squashing this uh, first attempt at, yes, I'm going to use the word democracy. It's technically not democracy. It's a representative republic, but we don't have time to dig into the nuance here. Nick has actually an episode on this in, you know, some other time. But essentially what we would call democracy here, this here we see Europeans dousing an attempt at democracy. Iranian people tried to establish democracy in the constitutional revolution, and it will be the Brits and the Russians that put an end to that. I mean, they're basically trying to model exactly the British model as far as the government Well, and once the British get involved, here's the irony, Americans, because I know most of our listeners are American. Here's the irony. Once they realize that it is the British that are keeping them from having our notion of democracy, the Iranians will then look to the United States for help and inspiration, they're like, hmm, what other place has successfully gotten rid of British people and established a constitution? Oh, the United States. Let's look to them for help. And the reason I emphasize this is this was an opportunity all the way back at the beginning of the 20th century for the United States and Iran, two countries that are not getting along very well, to have a lifelong friendship. This was an opportunity here. Well, I also just want to point out the fact that this is a common thread throughout history. Fidel Castro, the first place he went to try to make connections was the United States, and they pushed him right out the door towards Russia. 
Same thing. This is a little different in that actually the United States does help a little bit at first. And so let's talk about some of that real quickly. Um, basically, after the parliament is squashed by the Russian intervention and they reassert the power of uh, a new king, a man named at this point Muhammad Ali Shah, um, the constitutionalists begin to fight back. Now, the United States had a lot of people ah, – a lot is an exaggeration. They had people in Iran usually working as teachers or missionaries. One of those folks is a very famous man, at least in Iran – ironically, not in the United States, which is super weird – but a, a man from North Platte, Nebraska named Howard Baskerville. And uh, he was there as a teacher and as a missionary in the uh, city of Tabriz. And the city of Tabriz is where a lot of this like revolutionary fighting was taking place because it's really close to Russia. Anyway, he fell in love with Iran and decided he wanted to fight for the Iranian cause, autonomy, a constitution, all of the things that he believed in um, as an American. And he thought the Iranian pe people deserved the same. So he becomes a revolutionary. Uh, unfortunately, Howard Baskerville ends up a martyr um, for the Iranian revolution or the constitutional revolution as he ends up dying um, at, by the hands of a Russian sniper. He's sniped in the head and he dies almost instantly. Um, but if you, you know, go and you can Google and look up Howard Baskerville, there's a bust of him in Tabriz. You'll find like a cool image of like a, a Persian carpet, ironically enough, or whatever, of his face like woven in. Like he is considered a real martyr for the cause. And it shows that there is this connectivity between Americans and Iranians in what they value and what they strive to accomplish. The parliament eventually was allowed to reconvene in 1909, though they began to alienate the uh, clergy or the ulema with more of their secular reforms. Further cementing this possible connection between Iran and the United States, they bring in another American, this time at the parliamentary level, to help them modernize the economy. This man's uh, name is William Morgan Schuster. And again, he is brought in to revive the economy, most importantly through modernizing the taxation system that the parliament is seeking to implement. You see, Iran had been using this very antiquated zamandari system which is easy to corrupt it's very middle-aged like it's just it's out it was out of date for the modern world um worked pretty well back then not so good in a modern industrial era so he's there to like basically update it and one of the things that schuster also recommended um was to seize russian assets because those were going to be profitable things like land or other russian assets that that russia had in iran not not like go to russia and take them like the ones that russia had in iran take those back nationalize them well obviously this upsets the russians a great deal and they called for schuster's dismissal and wanted him rushed out of the country back to the united states initially the parliament the majlis refuses and so Russia again invades Iran and they actually start shelling the parliamentary building, the Majlis building. Eventually it works and Schuster's forced to go back to uh, the United States. But he wrote uh, – when he gets back, he wrote a very famous – his most famous writing of his lifetime. It's called The Strangling of Persia and it's basically – it's kind of like the sad writing of all of these opportunities that were in Iran, and Iran could have been all of these things, but it's being strangled by all of these outside forces. Um, one of my favorite quotes uh, of this writing is uh, actually kind of written in, in Persian poetic verse, which shows how influential the Persian culture was on Schuster. He says, Time with whose passage certain pains abate sharpens those of Persia's unjust fate. And again, that's a theme that we're going to see last throughout the 21st century. Like, again, these outside forces continuing to impose their will upon Iran. And if Iran responds in any way, everyone loses their shit and immediately they're in the wrong.
Russians go on to occupy Tehran, and they install another puppet king. This man's name is Ahmad Shah. Unfortunately, or fortunately, uh, in this case for the Russians, World War I breaks out, which, which basically distracts everybody from what's going on in Iran. Um, they Europeans decide they're going to kill each other in the millions for stupid reasons. Um, World War One, one of the dumbest wars of all time. Sorry if you like war, but it's stupid as hell. Yeah, I was going to say, is there a, was there a smart war? No, there's no smart war, but I mean, if you really want to kill millions upon millions so you can try out your new industrial tools and prove you have a strong nation through the fact that you can build a bigger tank, like what kind of like little dick shit? Oh my God, it's just, it's <laughs> gross. <laughs> Oh, quiet along the Western Front. Like, we celebrate that in Western civilization. Like, think about that. Think about how ridiculous that is to celebrate war the way we do, and yet that out of the other side of our mouths advocate things for like peace. And yet everything we do, our movies, our books, our video games, are all war-oriented. Mm-hmm. Hypocrisy at its finest. Anyway, whatever. We're getting sidetracked. Back to this. World War I sidetracks the Russians, and it sidetracks them even further because World War I leads to a little thing known as the Bolshevik Revolution. Well, there's actually multiple revolutions. Any Russian historian knows this, but, but I don't have time to do Russian history as well as Iranian. So it culminates in basically the Bolshevik Revolution and then the Russian Civil War, which eventually brings to power, um, well, I, yeah, the Communist Party. Um, and one of the things that the Communist Party firmly believed in while basically being run by Vladimir Lenin is that any form of colonialism or imperialism would actually fuel the capitalist cause. So Lenin, in his wisdom, and and he's a very interesting character, I'm not saying he's like the best guy in the world, but regardless, Lenin decides that he is going to uh, basically leave all of Russia's non-Russian um, territories. So again, that gets kind of messy. What's traditionally Russian? What's traditionally not? We don't have time to go into all of the other places that surround what would become the Soviet Union, what counts as Russian and what doesn't. I don't have time to do that. But what vehemently did not count as Russian for him was Iran. Um, so out of nowhere, uh, they up and leave. And, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that he has bigger fish to fry in the Russian Civil War fighting um, both the allies and the white army. What do you think of that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm asking we, my sociologist here who, who knows exponentially more about like the values of communism. What what do you think of what Lenin did there? We talk about this in class a lot and the students are always astonished that this Lenin decided to do this and basically abandon all colonial projects because colonialism and specifically imperialism goes against the very fundamental tenets of socialism. Um, and in fact, Lenin writes extensively on this. And his his ideas basically are that imperialism is the is the highest form of capitalism, and as a communist nation, you would want nothing to do with that. And he stays true to true to his word and abandons Iran at least and many other places. So Lenin ends up making a lot of fans in Iran, and and this actually sparks a little bit of of a rise in socialism as in Iran, which will not fully coalesce until like the mid twentieth century. But like the seeds are being sown here. Um, some of the egalitarian values in socialism are similar to egalitarian values you'd find in the Islamic world. Um, so some things actually align very well. Yeah, obviously communism does not support like religion, but like some of the values do, there is some intersection there. Anyway, this brings us to... Although we can argue that it's going to come back to bite them, which you're going to get to. Yeah, I am definitely going to get to. Anyway, um, World War One eventually ends and, uh... 
uh, I don't know where to go with this, but but here it caused the end of World War One is a nightmare for the Middle East that has caused problems that we are experiencing to this day. The Sykes Pico Agreement, please. Please Google that after this, or maybe we'll even link a short video in in, in the uh, show notes here. But the Sykes-Picot Agreement is essentially a secret agreement between the French and the British that carve up what used to be the Ottoman Empire into all of these zones of control. They call it the mandate system. But basically, most of the modern-day nation-states in the Middle East that are having problems with borders or different groups of people that should not be grouped together or more colonialism, all of these problems exist on a national front because of what the British and French did in 19... Uh, well, I don't have the date in front of me. 1917, 1918, somewhere in that zone in the Sykes-Picot Agreement. Yeah, I was going to say, like, it's cute we can talk about the Darcy Accords and shit, but, like, of everything we're going to talk about in this episode, I feel like everyone should know what the Sykes-Picot Agreement is and the ramifications that it still has to this day. It basically gave the British control of territories and the French control of territories. They then implemented this thing called divide and rule, separating people based on religion. So, for example, in the British Mandate of Palestine, separating and alienating Muslims and Jews, which, I don't know, is that causing any problems through today? Is it possibly causing any problems in Palestine or Israel? Hmm, I don't know. Or in the case of like Lebanon and Syria, separating Christians and Muslims out because there, believe it or not, are a lot of Christians in the Middle East as well. So yes, all of this is because of uh, the British and the French and the Sykes-Picot Agreement. Weirdly enough, here's a little aside for American listeners. The United States actually investigated the Sykes-Picot Agreement and what was going to happen after World War I with the former Ottoman territories. It's known as the King Crane Commission. And it was like this congressional commission that basically found everything the British and the French were doing was going to screw the region up for generations and unfortunately before congress and then even the the president at the time woodrow wilson were able to do anything about this or or perhaps pressure the french and british to think differently woodrow wilson had a stroke but again america had an opportunity there to play kind of the good guy in the middle east for once and in this case unfortunate circumstance uh uh, led to it not taking place anyway again please look up the sykes pico agreement The Sykes-Picot Agreement doesn't directly involve Iran, since Iran was not part of the Ottoman Empire. It was actually a rival to the Ottoman Empire, but it is happening right on their doorstep. So I did feel like it was important to note that now on their doorstep is more colonialism, in this case, the British and the French. Okay, Uh, another important thing that takes place in the post-World War I era in Iran is the rise of a certain Persian Cossack warrior, a man that would come to be known as Reza Khan. Um, He eventually gets the attention of the British colonial powers, and eventually the British promote him to recapture the capital city, uh, Tehran, from a brief Soviet occupation. Now, the, Soviet, the Soviets occupied it because of the civil war that was taking place, but he is tabbed by the British to go retake this city from the Soviet occupation. The reason I bring this up is he, he garners a lot of favor with the British, and the British, once Tehran falls back into their hands, become the sole colonial power in Iran. Again, Russians basically gone. The Brits will now be the sole Soviet, or sole Soviet, sole colonial power in Iran. 
He eventually is promoted to commander-in-chief under the British, and eventually they help him move to prime minister in a 1929 coup d'etat, and eventually the abdication of the king gives him um, uh, the ability to consolidate power until he has himself named king in 1925. And again, all of this was was with the help with the British. They're basically like, this is a dude that has the characteristics we want, who we think we can control, and will now be the new king of Iran. And most importantly, he has a very Western mindset. So not only can we can control him, but he wants to Westernize his country and basically make it just like ours, but ours in which we can exploit. Um, his objectives in his words, these are his words. He wanted a Persia free of clerical influence, nomadic uprising, and ethnic differences. He wanted a European-style educational institution. He wanted westernized women active outside the home and modern economic structures with state factories, communication networks, investment banks, and department stores. And right now, many of our listeners in the Western world are like, that sounds freaking amazing. It's just like here. Cool. Not everybody wants to live like us. In fact, I would argue living like us can cause a whole host of other problems, but we have numerous episodes on those from alienation to narcotizing dysfunction and on down the line. Um, and in this case, a lot of people did not want to live like us. One size does not fit all in terms of lifestyle. What are your thoughts? I just think it's funny. As the sociologist. I think it's funny that he includes department stores in there. Like it's so specific, (laughs) these things that he wants. (laughs) It's Uh, interesting because – you're right. The Western lens is like, all of those things sound good. Why would anyone not want those? Well, some of those things fundamentally go against the entire history and beliefs and values of the Iranian culture. Right? Just, that's why. I mean, he went so far as to ban any form of veiling of women. Like, no sharor, no uh, hijab, uh, no burqa, although that's mostly Arabia, not Persian. But regardless, any form of veiling was banned. Now, Conversely, the current Islamic Republic makes people have some sort of veil, which also is problematic for various reasons. The point here, though, is that both regimes, whether we're talking about Reza or the current regime, both of them are removing the ability for the women to choose, the women to make their own choices. And in this case, Reza is forcing them to basically absolve a little piece of themselves. They don't get to be, they don't get to practice their belief structure the way they want to anymore. He's banning it. He's basically trying to force them to be white women which is just as bad as the reverse. Um, Many people are like, especially in the West, and even a a lot of women all over the world will say things like, you know, well, of course, it's it's about, you know, it's about freedom. The, The veil is about freedom. However, there are arguments on the other side that are often muffled by the Western world. See, some might argue, and I've actually, relatives of mine have echoed this to me, that um, wearing of the veil isn't limiting of freedom. It's actually an expression of freedom. And that, you know, by, by, by basically wearing the veil, that, that, that woman, whether she gets to go to college, earns a job, makes friends, wins a husband, etc., all of that is done based on her character, her persona, who she is as a person, not the objectified product of some sort of Western sensationalist ideal. In other words, the Iranian woman would never have to worry in that case about why she is in the position she is in, if that makes sense. I mean, yeah, I mean, they would make the argument that the Western sexualized exploited woman is the one that's unfree. Yeah, because you, because that woman is judged only skin deep. Mm-hmm. 
only based on her attractiveness. That is the value she serves in society. Cue the Carl's Jr. commercial of a woman on a bathing suit sitting on a fancy car eating a hamburger. Right. Like it's that that's the objectification that could be argued. Now, as both men ourselves, we will also say it is not our place to make these decisions or make these calls. And I must be clear about that. We're I'm only providing opinions that I've heard. For me, I would have to assume the best way here is to allow women to choose for themselves how they want to symbolize and represent their faith, their belief, who they are. Well, I think the worst thing you can do is have a male king dictate what they must do. Yeah, you must wear it or you must not wear it. That's the dumbest thing. Men should not be making these types of choices for women. So I must now kind of conclude that part of the, 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 the episode with that. Now, I do want to give Reza a little credit here. He is not universally reviled in Iranian history by any stretch of the imagination because some of his modernization reforms actually were quite positive. The University of Tehran was established in 1934. It's still standing. It is still an institution that is widely respected in the region. Um, he did... Um, improve infrastructure and modernize the nation. Um, and, and he basically industrialized the nation and it became a much more productive nation. So, I mean, those things are kind of undeniable. So some good did, good did come from this. He is a very controversial character. Let's just say it's not all good or all bad with Reza. Um, I guess as far as Western Westerners are concerned, here's some negative things that he also did. He banned a free press and he banned all political parties, which is very undemocratic of him. He's more of a dictator than anything. But most importantly to the conversation we want to have today regarding colonialism is he sought to take on the oil concessions. Yep, we're going back to the DRC concession and later concessions. Now there's an actual company running the show. It's known as the Anglo-Persian Oil Company. And this oil company is awful, and they're still awful to this day because now they are known as BP, and they cannot stop screwing up the earth. But regardless, just know that they weren't just awful now. They've always been awful. Uh, are any oil companies not awful? I yeah, guess I shouldn't I call imagine. out. I shouldn't call out BP solely, but yeah. God, BP, you're fucking awful. All right. Anyway, back to the story. The Anglo-Persian Oil Company renegotiated um, the oil concessions with Reza, or and he actually sought some other attempts to renegotiate. Uh, but that renegotiation doesn't really change the terms that I mentioned earlier with the DRC concession a whole hell of a lot. It's still astoundingly very pro-British in terms of who's going to make a profit here. Um, and what little profit does make it into Iran will be used to consolidate the power of the king, not help the people. Um, he also actually began to uh, allow Germans heavy investment in the development of Iran's economy. Lufthansa, again, just as an example of a very famous company, they're the famous airline now, the German airline, they begin to work in Iran. Um, and what he's trying to do in a way is model himself after another leader in the region who was modernizing his new country very quickly. Mustafa Kemal, eventually known as Ataturk, father of the Turks, was rapidly modernizing and industrializing the Republic of Turkey. And basically, uh, in keeping up with the Joneses, Reza always felt like he was just a little bit behind Ataturk and kept trying to keep up with him with his modernization reforms. But unlike Ataturk, who came to power by defeating the Allies in a war for independence, Reza was kind of their puppet. And that's one major difference that I think people forget. Uh, anyway, the problem with what I mentioned last, the German investment in, in the Iranian economy, especially as we get into the 1930s, is 
there's going to be a conflict of interest here. You see, the British put this man in power, and he is now working very closely with the Germans. And as we know, in the 1930s, England and Germany are not going to be friends for very much longer uh, because of another world war. You see, killing each other in the millions once wasn't good enough for Europeans or white people, let's just be blunt. They decide they need to do it again. And in this case, some of them are even going to be placed in, like, camps and burned and gassed and, gosh, Western civilization. We are so far ahead, man. That is civilization. Whew! Anyway, that wasn't good enough either. We decided to nuke a couple of people as well. But that's 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 neither here nor there. Regardless, the British and Germans are going – there's going to be a conflict of interest in Iran. And eventually, Reza's refusal to stop working with the Germans and purge Iran of all German citizens is going to force England's hand. And England's actually going to tab their now newfound weird odd ally, the Soviet Union, because they're now forced into being allies right before and into World War II, to help them. England and the Soviet Union go in to occupy Iran to basically purge Iran of the Germans. It's not that they care necessarily that the Germans are there just like hanging out. No, Iran, of course, is rich with oil. And both the Soviet and English war machine do not want that oil going to feed the German war machine. Anyway, Reza... Well, also, I think like probably one of the important factors there is the change of leadership in the Soviet Union... Oh, yeah. St- Stalin's been in power now for years. Yeah. yeah. So we can talk about Lenin wanting to abandon imperialism, etc. Stalin, not so much along those lines. Not along those lines at all. Yeah. No, not, not a nice man um, by any stretch. Okay. Anyway, Reza ends up in exile in South Africa and dies in 1944. World War II is a thing. Don't have time to teach World War II right now in this episode. Most, In fact, it's one of the few parts of history I think most people uh, have somewhat of a grasp on because they do still teach that here in uh, the West. They don't Although I think much. even it's – yeah, just like everything else, it's such a Western slanted – like I was having a conversation with someone about the other day about this, about the numbers of Soviet casualties and how the Red Army is the one that basically defeated the Nazis and they like – it blew their yeah. minds somehow. What? Like, it wasn't D-Day? Now, D-Day yeah. was a huge deal. Let's not deny that. But before D-Day, it was the Red Army taking the brunt of the attacks for the better part of a year and a half. Um, and it was Stalin asking, hey, Roosevelt, when's this D-Day going to happen? And they just kept delaying and delaying and delaying. But it, that's a whole different story. All right. Back to Iran. World War II actually prompted a new kind of uh, – post-World War II prompted a new kind of nationalism around the world. And we see this nationalism begin to take hold in the Middle East, in sub-Saharan Africa, in Southeast Asia, a little bit in Latin America. But basically all of these places that had been dominated by European colonialism for centuries began to ask the question, hmm – They've been telling us now for centuries that they're better than us, that they're civilizing us, that they're giving us their way of life and their religion and whatever they that they deserve. They are under the what Rudyard Kipling called the white man's burden to make us better people. And yet now in back-to-back wars, they have nearly eliminated each other. They have trashed their continent. They have dropped nuclear weapons on each other. They had – well, on each other. Technically, I guess the Japanese are not Western civilization. But they had pretty much followed Western ideals to become the Empire of Japan. Well, also, um, it wasn't on each other. We were the only ones that dropped nuclear yeah, weapons. Yeah, that, that is a good point. Um, they place each other in camps, whether we're talking about Japanese internment camps or Nazi concentration camps. I mean – 
Basically, the rest of the world looks around and says, wow, that's not civilization. They are the least civilized of anybody. And we deserve liberation from these animals, these monsters, these murderous monsters. And yes, Europeans, Americans, Russians, murderous monsters. There is no other way to put it. And I get that that's not a popular sentiment, but we're talking nearing 100 million deaths across these two world wars. That's murderous monsters. There is, and, and, and for what? For what? Support of some flags? Some fucked up ideologies? Fascism, communism, republicanism. Like, really, you're willing to kill millions for that. So yeah, Sub-Saharan Africa, the Middle East, Southeast Asia, and we're talking places like that did get their independence. Vietnam, uh, South Africa, India, uh, Kenya, Tanzania, and of course, Iran. All of these places will be looking for independence. There is no reason that we should be living under the will of these, again, these murderous monsters anymore. No reason. Iran, again, is, is, is not immune to having those feelings. So nationalist movements for Iran to purge themselves of these colonial powers, in this case, namely the British at this point, became, um, came to the forefront and a party is formed. A political party known as the Nationalist Front. It is a party that ironically does follow some Western ideals in this case. Some would say it is Democratic Socialist Party um, began to form to try and uh, create basically a new Iran after World War II. Uh, other parties also began to form and uh, the, the two-day party is an interesting party. It was a full-blown Iranian communist party um, thinking that communism might be a way uh, to liberate oneself from Western colonial powers and they actually wouldn't be off base. I mean, Cuba eventually uses communism to liberate itself from Western powers, in this case, America. Uh, Vietnam uses communism to liberate itself from France and then the United States, excuse me, from Japan and then France and from the United States. Go Vietnam. That is some hardcore shit um uh north korea was able to liberate itself although that one is not going nearly as well as the other ones um using communism so that's why they thought that I, again i'm not advocating for communism here but at that time if you're forced between to choose between evils and it is capitalism that has been oppressing you through the colonial powers a natural offsetting or antithesis would be communism so you might side with that what do you think no, yeah, I fully agree. Also, obviously, the Soviet influence in the region for the period that you've been talking about is clear. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Um, another party, it's not even a political party, but after World War II, the religious clerics, the Shia Mushtahids, or the religious scholars, the mullahs, would become more paramount as well. So you have these different ideals that uh, do not align on many levels, but they do align on this one level. We want to get rid of foreign powers. That's the one thing that, that becomes paramount in the uh, post-World War II era. And into this atmosphere, a very popular leader, a man named Mohammed Mossadegh, came to, pa came to prominence. He was the leader or one of the leaders in the National Front Party. And his policies and advocacy for Iranian autonomy gained popularity. By 1951, Mohammed Mossadegh uh, was voted into uh, being the prime minister of the Majlis by a uh, tally of 79 to 12. That is like an overwhelming victory for him to become prime minister. That's how popular he was. And a new 
king, this time Reza's son, Muhammad Reza, was forced to appoint him to appeal to the people. Muhammad Reza, I'll probably talk about a little bit more going forward. In fact, I have to talk about him a little bit more going forward. But he's an interesting character. He is technically Reza's son, but he's not very Iranian. He's kind of handpicked by the British to come in and be another puppet king. But he, unlike Reza, doesn't really have any Iranian pride, at least not initially. He's not even raised in Iran. In fact, when he's originally tabbed to be king, he doesn't even speak Farsi or Persian. Um, he's very European. So it's interesting that he would be the one tabbed to become the new king of Persia after World War II. Immediately, though, Mossadegh, as the prime minister, begins to take on some things. He takes on unemployment. He begins to introduce unemployment compensation, benefits for the sick, workmen's compensation. He freed all of the peasants from their land contracts. Yes, there was still some feudalism, believe it or not, in the mid-20th century there that the British were cool just leaving intact. Um, he freed the peasants from their land contracts and he would use public works and these public works would be funded by the estates that he began to consolidate. This man was very forward thinking and he was very for the people. Um, most importantly, on May 1st of 1951, he nationalized the Anglo-Iranian oil company and expropriated its assets. So that is the thing that is going to make world news. All of a sudden... Anglo-Iranian oil company and England's stranglehold on oil exploitation in Iran, gone. Iran will still continue to exploit oil for better or worse. We could have an environmental conversation right now, but let's not. They're still going to exploit oil, but now all of the profits, all of that is going to help the Iranian people, not British companies, not British investors. That makes no sense. Where is the, where is the resource? The resource is in, on Iranian soil. It is not on English soil. England should, can go pound sand. And this is the same for all of the colonial powers who feel all butthurt when someone nationalizes its own resource. Like, sorry, it's here. It's here. Why does everyone get so butthurt? Why do the English get butthurt? Or later on, the Americans, when like this happens in like Nicaragua with fruit. Like, why does everyone get so butthurt about nations nationalizing their own resource? Because they lose the stranglehold that they have to exploit the population and the economic resources there. Clearly. It is the most, most ethically corrupt thing on earth. Like it really is. Like you go to somewhere else's, someone else's house, take their shit and then get mad when they want their shit back. Right. Like, mm -hmm. God, the Brits and the Americans just, wow. Okay. Anyway, this is what Mossadegh had to say about his nationalization of uh, the Anglo-Iranian oil company. He said, our long years of negotiation with foreign countries have yielded no results thus far. With the oil revenue, we could meet our entire budget and combat poverty, disease, and backwardness among our people. Another important consideration is that by the elimination of the power of the British company, we would also eliminate corruption and intrigue, by means of which the uh, internal affairs of our country have been influenced. Once this tutelage has ceased, Iran will have achieved its economic and political independence. The Iranian state prefers to take over the production of petroleum itself. The company should do nothing else but return its property to the rightful owners. Nationalization law will provide that 25% of net profits on oil will be set aside to meet legitimate claims by the company for compensation. So what makes this so interesting is that he doesn't even decide he's going to appropriate all assets back to Iran. He says if England can prove it has any legitimate claims to investment here, he's setting aside 25% of profits to pay them for it. This dude's really cool. The fact that the British didn't just take this and run with it was just dumb. 
He's eventually granted emergency power in 1952 to curtail the growing power of the king. The important part here is this man is so popular. I mean, I, I can't on a global level. I mean, even here in the United States, he wins Time Magazine Man of the Year for 1951. Like, no one had a lot of beef for what he was doing in a post-World War II, post-colonial era. Like, yes, Iranian oil should profit the uh, productive capacity and the infrastructure of Iran, much and much more the Iranian people. So he could do things like take care of unemployment benefits, um, free people from land contracts, basically modernize the country, but in a way that helps the people, not himself. The British weren't having it. The British... Are, again, I've already said it in this episode numerous times, decide that being awful is the best way to be. Um, and uh, that's a very British thing. So England has this uh, little force that most of our listeners are aware of called MI6. And uh, Churchill's actually back in power again. He, there was a brief hiatus there. Most people know that. He, but he's back in power there in, in, in England again. And uh, ooh, this is going to sting. But uh, contrary to popular belief, Winston Churchill is one of the worst human beings of the 20th century. Uh, I get that he made a cute little V sign in a photograph and, uh, <laughs> and made the British feel like they were going to win World War II. But let's not uh, forget uh, of some of his policies he supported in uh, mass famines in India or concentration camps in Kenya, or in this case, the overthrowing of democracy in Iran. There are so many lives, so much blood on this man's hands, it astonishes me that he is a hero in not just England, but like the Western world to this day. Awful. Awful human being. Okay, back to the story. Um, They decide, MI6 decides that uh, that this isn't going to be a thing that England still deserves to profit mostly off of Iranian oil. And uh, eventually internal conflicts had forced their chosen puppet king to flee in 1953, so they're super scared of what's going on. The king's not in the country, and Mossadegh has emergency powers to continue to implement his plan to nationalize oil and profit from it. So it's kind of interesting here. Uh, England isn't in a position to do a lot by itself anymore. World War II did wreak havoc on England and its infrastructure and its military capacity. Moreover, it is dealing with a number of post-colonial like uprisings in its former empire. And we've already mentioned a couple of them. Uh, India would be a very prominent example who had just gained its independence in 49. Kenya is working towards independence, South Africa, etc. Like basically England is not in a good position to where it can like full-blown like invade Iran. Nor can it come up with a good enough idea to stop Mossadegh. But they know one thing. They know that there are a couple of new power brokers in the world. And the world is now kind of being split, right, into two different camps. The communist camp and the western camp. And they are definitely in the western camp. So they're not going to ask the Soviet Union for help anymore. But they are going to ask their new besties, the United States. United States, at least under Truman, was not super thrilled with helping them in their colonial endeavors. But a new regime came to power in Washington, D.C., the Eisenhower administration. The Eisenhower administration was a lot of things, but one thing it definitely was was staunchly anti-communist. They are fully under the whole Red Scare politicking at this point. The British knew that if they could paint Mossadegh, even with the lightest brush, as maybe a closet communist, the Eisenhower administration would lose their minds and do whatever the British wanted them to do. 
And that's what happens. MI6, Churchill, they're able to convince Eisenhower that Mossadegh was a closet communist. They also knew Eisenhower had a new tool in his arsenal that can do secret type of invasions and uh, engage in horrific activities all around the world. They could use fear and violence and murder to make political decisions, better known maybe as, I don't know, some T word we're used to saying. Um, that would be the Central Intelligence Agency, uh, led by Kermit Roosevelt at that moment in time. And this is where they decide they are going to launch the first successful coup in CIA history. Yes, the first successful coup in CIA history took place in Iran, where the United States invades Iran, overthrows a democracy. Again, remember, Mossadegh was voted into office. Overwhelmingly. And installs a dictatorship. I will repeat that one more time. The United States in 1953 invaded Iran through the CIA and overthrew a democracy and installed a dictatorship. Should I say it one more time? Yeah. I won't. I won't say it one more time. Yes, I will. In 1953, the United States invaded Iran and overthrew a democracy and installed a dictatorship. It's known as Operation Ajax. And listeners, you're lucky enough that I actually have the entire operation here sitting in front of me. You see, a 2012-2013 Freedom of Information Act actually got this document released publicly. There's still some redacted information in here, but uh, some of the important things that I want to discuss are right here in black and white, written by the CIA themselves. You see, their general plan, in their words, war, words are, and this is, their, this is now, I'm reading the document, Appendix A, International Operational Plan for Ajax, as cabled uh, from Nicosia to the headquarters on June 1st of 1953. Wow, that's a hell of a title. The purpose is to will be to create, extend, and enhance public hostility and distrust and fear of Mossadegh and his government. A sum equivalent to $150,000 will be budgeted for this program. So the first part of the thing that the CIA wants to do is create a public campaign against Mossadegh. Fine. Propaganda. Yeah, propaganda. What they're going to do in this propaganda is, A, Mossadegh favors the two-day party and the USSR. This will be supported with black documents. So what they're saying here is they're going to try and paint Mossadegh as a communist and thus as anti-Islamic and thus so Mossadegh loses the support of his religious following. They're going to do this through black documents. What are black documents, Nick? They're made up. They're made up documents. They're going to falsify documents. <laughs> B, Mossadegh is an enemy of Islam since he associates with the two-day and advances their aims. So the rest of their propaganda is going to be like, this dude's going to take your religion. You don't want, you don't want this dude in power. Come on, CIA. Mossadegh is deliberately destroying the morale of the army and its ability to maintain order. Again, the military, like in most countries, does have some sort of like romanticized like iconography, and they're going to say that Mossadegh doesn't support the army, right? It'd be like, again, here in the United States, this president doesn't support the troops. And again, people of a certain political persuasion lose their freaking minds. Uh, Mossadegh is deliberately fostering the growth of regional separatist elements through his removal of army control over tribal areas. Mossadegh is deliberately leading the country into economic collapse. Mossadegh has been corrupted by power. Consistent with these themes, it will be per the persistent slant that Mossadegh has been unwitting victim of his unscrupulous and personally ambitious advisors. This is like a, just a laundry list of like the most cliche like spy novel nonsense and the fact that it works sucks so bad. We yeah, we use this in our revolutions class because literally it's like a blueprint for how to do a coup. 
and it's funny because like Jared's reading, it's we'll pay this person this much money, and we'll this this is how much the propaganda campaign is going to cost. It's like a line by line bulleted list of the coup. Gross. We're going to make use, and this is the second part. How are they going to spread these messages? I just ended up reading in a list. Make use of Radio Tehran. Then through posters, special news sheets, spread the program of the new government, including elements of broadcast appeal presented in simplest terms, such as immediate slashes in living costs, increased pay for government officials, and army personnel. They're going to give maximum local publicity to U.S. and U.K. statements, which all have been prepared in advance. So basically, they're going to try and make the U.K. and the United States like the good guys. Like, we knew Mossadegh was going to do this. Um, Which is interesting. It's interesting that they're willing to go to this extent for this propaganda campaign. Um, Which is interesting because here in a later part of the document, I'm on page – I moved to page 21, not that anyone's like following along with me at home. Um, During the period of intensive anti-Mosaddegh publicity before the coup day, leaders and their henchmen – I kid you not, the word henchman is used in the CIA document. Henchman. God damn, James Bond. (laughs) Henchman. Will A, spread word of their disapproval of Mosaddegh. B, give open support to the symbol of the throne and give moral backing to the Shah through direct contact with him at the shrine. So basically they're going to be like, hey, remember, we used to have a king. Kings are like super like it's an Iranian thing. Let's get let's get the king back. C, as required, they will stage small pro-religious anti-Mosaddegh demonstrations in widely scattered sections of Tehran. And I want our audience to pay special attention to D. The CIA, again, this is their document will support terrorist groups to threaten that they are ready to take direct action against pro-Mosaddegh deputies and members of Mossadegh's entourage and government. Let me say that one more time. This, these are their words, not mine. Terrorist groups to threaten that they are ready to take direct action against pro-Mosaddegh deputies. So the CIA is going to help terrorist groups in their own language to remove Mossadegh from power. Now, what type of terrorist groups do you think they're referring to, Nick? I can't even. I can't even. Like, the whole thing is completely ridiculous. These are their words, listeners. This is the United States CIA advocating for a certain type of terrorism in the Middle East to help them remove democracy in 1953. This is their document. You can find this online. Freedom of Information Act released this document in 2012 and 2013. It is known as Operation Ajax. Final action immediately preceding the coup. One, on the appointed day, staged attacks will be made against respected religious leaders in Tehran. So the CIA and their henchmen, in their words, are going to attack religious leaders. That They're actually going to attack religious leaders. Other religious leaders will at once say that these attacks were ordered by Mossadegh as his reaction to the disfavor in which his government is held by the religious leaders of the entire country. So the CIA is going to attack religious leaders, but then blame blame Mossadegh and make it look like it was Mossadegh doing that. Part three, a member, a number of the more important leaders will at once take sanctuary in the grounds. And this process, I cannot believe it, actually works. It actually works. Mossadegh is eventually, like, relieved of his duties. He's forced into exile, uh, and the country falls right back under a dictatorship of the king. Uh, the king, uh, Muhammad Reza, is brought back from his own exile. He's placed back on the, on the throne, and he basically gets to rule more or less with, with a, with an iron fist. Um, 
all future attempts at nationalization of oil. Again, I, I must stress, this was all about nationalization of oil. Everything I just read from like overthrowing democracy to supporting terrorism in the Middle East, all of attacking this religious a, leaders. attacking religious yeah. leaders, this was because of fucking oil. I cannot stress this enough. And it's in the CIA document. I'm not reading like Iranian documents here. This is the CIA themselves. This is what they did. Um, it's absolutely obscene. Um, all future attempts at nationalization of, of oil in Iran were to be brutally squashed. How are they going to really brutally squash them with this like young, unpopular king? Well, they're going to give him a special tool. They're going to create a new secret police force for him. Yes, the CIA stays in Iran after the overthrow of Mossadegh. And they install and they create what is known as Savak, one of the most feared secret polices of the late 20th century in the world. Uh, Which is saying a lot because there's a lot of secret police forces at this time. <laughs> absolutely. Savak uh, would actually learn under the tutelage that's created in 1957 under the CIA and another secret police force from a nearby country known as Israel, Mossad. So here in Iran, we have the CIA – Mossad and Savak all working to make sure that there is no resistance to Western colonialism in Iran. And now that Western colonialism is no longer British, it is American. Because funny enough, after the overthrow of Mossadegh, five of the seven uh, oil companies now making the most money on Iranian oil are American. Standard Oil being the most famous of them. A permanent fi- permanent panel of five CIA agents would remain in Iran and continue to tutor Savak. One of the most famous tutors, some of our listeners may remember if they're of a certain age, uh, was a man named Norman Schwarzkopf, where he got his teeth cut in Iran. Of course, uh, if you're unfamiliar with Norman Schwarzkopf, he ends up being a very famous American hero for winning the Gulf War later on in American history in, in Iraq in 90 and 91. But he got his teeth cut in C, uh, in uh, with the CIA in Iran. Now, what does Savak do? They censor the media. They hunt down all former dissidents. They teach and learn new torture methods, and they perform political assassinations, including the former head of Savak ends up assassinated by his own forces. Um, they do this all at one of the most famous prisons in the world. It's unfortunate that it's still famous, but the new regime actually uses this prison for similar things. Um, anyway, it's known as Even Prison, and you can look up images of Even Prison online. But there is an interesting um, uh, confession we have from one of the former uh, prisoners of Even on what ha- happened there. A man named Abrahamian uh, was interviewed and gave his rendition of what took place, his experience being a prisoner um, that was tortured by Savak in this prison. And if you're tortured by Savak, it means you're being tortured basically by the CIA. This is what he had to say. Brute force was supplemented with the bastinado, which is the beating of soles of feet. Sleep deprivation, extensive solitary confinement, glaring searchlights, standing in one place for hours on end. Nail extraction. Snakes were used, the favor, favored for use with women. Electrical shocks with cattle prods, often into the rectum. Cigarette burns, sitting on hot grills. Acid dripped into nostrils, near drownings, now better known in American history as waterboarding. Mock executions and an electric chair with a large metal mask to muffle screams while amplifying them for the victim. This latter contraption was dubbed the Apollo, which is an allusion to the American space capsules. Prisoners were also humiliated by being raped, urinated on, and forced to stand naked. What do you think of these types of torture techniques that the CIA either practiced or taught Savak how to practice in a foreign country? Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of 
hoopla about this. I don't want to say a lot. There was a little bit of hoopla about this not that long ago, actually, when some of these documents started being released. And it was not surprising, but kind of interesting uh, how much no one cared. Like, literally, this stuff was in the, it was in the media, it was in the news, and, like, the public just turned a blind eye and, like, did not care that this is what the CIA does. Yep, Americans are easily, at this point in time, and I do not think this is hyperbole, the most ethically and morally flexible people that have ever existed. They can both, at one point in time, talk about peace and freedom and democracy out of one side of their mouths, and then no, no. That under the table, that those things exist because they are doing these things in other places around the world. And we cannot stress enough that this was not the will of the people. They overthrew the democratically elected leader to implement these types of policies in Iran. Uh, to show how far Savak would go under the tutelage of the CIA, one of my favorite Iranians um, of the 20th century is a school teacher uh, and an author, a man named Samad Barangi, uh, who lived in the very revolutionary city of Tabriz, which was already, re already referenced in a prior revolution. And uh, Samad Barangi, again, was a teacher and, 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 and a writer. He wrote a children's book, one of the most famous children's books of the 20th century, uh, at least outside the Western world, known as The Little Black Fish. Uh, we can link a free online version in the show notes if you want. It is just a children's story that teaches children how to challenge authority and how to challenge, like, prevailing wisdom through the vehicle of, like, again, just this little black fish who wants to see beyond his own pond. Like, he's been told his whole life, his pond is his whole world. Don't question. And he questions and goes on an epic journey. Like, it's not – it's just a kid's story. It's not unlike, I don't know, the Lorax or something here in the West. And yet Samad Barangi um, ends up being murdered by Savak. Technically, it says he drowned in the Aras River. But, like, who accidentally drowns in the Aras River? Like, it, no one accidentally drowns in the Aras River. He was killed by Savak. Savak agents were seen leaving the scene. He was drowned. He was murdered for writing and teaching uh, to children to challenge the prevailing uh, stories that they're told. That's it. That's it. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if I need to read an excerpt of this story right now, but I mean, it, we can link the whole story. Again, it's a kid's story. It takes like 10 minutes to read. I highly recommend it. I mean, this story shouldn't die just because Barangi did. Um, anyway, that's how far Savak and was willing to go to, to quell dissent against the king. The king noticed dissent continued to grow. So between 1960 and 63, um, under again the tutelage of his Western allies, launched his own revolution. This is now like the third revolution of the 20th century we're talking about in Iran. But in this case, it's a revolution by the king for the people. That's a super weird revolution. The only reason he calls it a revolution is to like basically placate the people. It's known as the white revolution. Can you have a revolution from the top down? No. That's no such thing as a revolution. The re a revolution is literally a world turned upside down. But regardless, the White Revolution is interesting. It does make one improvement for Iran. It does end up finally splitting the oil revenue between Brits, Americans, and then Iranians 50-50. It eventually does get that. What does he do with this extra revenue? He actually tries to make a little bit of a difference. I can't believe I'm saying nice things, but I, people are complicated and will say a few things that he improved. Uh, the king in this case, Mohammad Reza. He launched land reform programs. He abolished feudalism for good. Um, he redistributed land to 1.5 million families. He nationalized forests and pasture lands. 
He did privatize uh, government-owned enterprises. He actually granted women's suffrage. He created the Literacy Corporation to go spread like literacy around the country. He created the Health Corporation to provide medicine to rural areas. He nationalized all fresh water. And uh, the Iranian education system to this day still has like – it's still free education through like college – um, and you get free food, free food for mothers, social security. All of those things were implemented under the king in his white revolution. Those are all actually pretty good things. I mean, what do we make of this? Like on one side, we've got torture. And then on the other side, we have these things that like, what do we make of this? Case? I mean, it's the two opposing ways to try to quell rebellion, right? On one, it's hardcore cracking down of dissent and torturing dissenters. And on the other side, it's liberal economic policies to try to placate anyone that might think about resisting. But it was too little too late, man. U.S. imperial interest and overt westernization really began to alienate traditionalists in Iran, especially those religious scholars who I keep kind of referencing. And uh, the religious scholars have a big following there. So a lot of what the United States brought to Iran during this uh, quasi-occupation under uh, the Shah was antithetical to the traditional Shia beliefs and ways of life. Land redistribution sounded good on paper, but that land they redistributed was not from like the rich. It was from the religious scholars themselves, instantly making them enemies. Most importantly, those lands were in the trust of a zakat, which for those of you that don't know Islam, that's like one of the pillars of Islam. That's like all all Muslims, it's like the third pillar, all Muslims contribute to the zakat, this charity that is then redistributed or used to bolster um, um, the community, the ummah. And uh, a lot of the land that was redistributed to these families was taken from that ummah collective. So it's super weird, but that's that's where they were taking a lot of this from. Further, complete entry into the global market as a subservient player created that extroverted uh, economic development that I had mentioned earlier. It further perpetuated it. You can enter into the free market at any moment, but if you enter into that market after there are already established uh, an established hierarchy and leaders and movers and shakers, you're never going to catch up. Think of it this way, listeners. If you open up an everything like mom and pop shop next to a Walmart, how's that going to go? you will immediately either lose or become dependent to that Walmart for support. And that's what happens with Iran here. So all the promises of Western liberalism in in economics, they don't happen to Iran. They begin to fall further and further behind and further into debt. One thing that really pissed a lot of people off at Iran under U.S. rule, capitulation laws of 1964 that allowed the United States 100% exploitation of the Iranian market without like things like tariffs or anything like that. That is super weird. I mean, imagine like if China today could come into the United States and sell and produce and do anything they wanted in the economy without any checks or balances. Mm -hmm. That's what United States had in Iran and it did not benefit the Iranian people. Um, But the second part of the capitulation laws is that Iran would be forced to follow the American lead on all foreign policy. That means things like the – this is the 60s. So like things like the Vietnam War or what would eventually be like the Six-Day War in Egypt or whatever, uh, Egypt and Israel or the October War. All of these things that Iran would actually probably support the other side on, they were forced to support the Americans or the American allies on. So Iran has no autonomy or independence in its ability to control itself on a foreign level. 
What do you think of that? No, yeah, just like we mentioned earlier in the episode, complete control of foreign policy, that's exactly what they've succeeded in achieving here. And it's into this atmosphere we get maybe the most famous Iranian of the 20th century, uh, and now the most famous revolution that Americans are aware of, usually only from their own warped point of view. Ruhollah uh, Mosawi Khomeini, and my pronunciation sucked that go around. My Farsi still sucks. It's inconsistent to say the least. But Khomeini, uh, or as Americans say, Khomeini. Um, <laughs> my pronunciation was bad in both cases. But regardless, he becomes a prominent figure during this time in his resistance to the uh, basically all of the things that take place during the White Revolution. Uh, his first name roughly translates into English as the Spirit of God. Um, he, as a uh, young man, had studied law, uh, both Sharia law uh, in the Shia spirit, as well as Western law. So he knew both. Um, jurisprudence, which is better known in, in Persian as fiqh. Uh, he also studied poetry. And philosophy, again, not just Islamic philosophy, but Western philosophy, the Aristotles, the Socrates, the Enlightenment thinkers, the Rousseaus, the Kants, etc. He studied all of these philosophies in his as, as a young man growing up in the city of Qom, which is the religious capital of Iran. Not the political capital, but the religious capital. He gained prominence in the early 1960s with the death of other lead religious leaders. He eventually became a professor of philosophy um, at a madrasa in Qom, and he became so popular that he became what was known as a marja'i taklid, which is basically a model for imitation. That's how popular he became. Now, how do you earn this? I don't know that I have time to go through like a brief rundown of like how you work your way up through the academic system there, but it's not like completely unlike the academic system in the Western world. And like, as far as like this religious, like you start as like a mullah, like a religious scholar, and then eventually you become a mushtahid, and then you work your way up to the level of like a hojatola. And then once you receive enough like accolades and enough support, you can become an ayatollah. And it, it is, it is a, a system. And when I say like support, like what you write, what you produce, what you say, that's how you garner support. It is then voted upon by your peers or your cohorts for you to move to the next level of like religious leader. So what I'm saying here is the uh, uh, Khomeini was so popular that very early on in the 1960s, he becomes like a marja-i-taklid, which is a model for imitation, and eventually gets to the level that becomes known as Ayatollah, uh, which is one of the highest levels it, you can technically become a little bit higher than that by becoming like the supreme ayatollah, like the top ayatollah, but he becomes an ayatollah in the 1960s. So that just means he's super popular. He's garnered a lot of support and it is pseudo-democratic in that regard. Like he had to earn that support. He didn't just like get like named it. Like we here in the West, like you, like, like a CEO, like that, we don't take a vote for who gets to be the new CEO of like Apple or Amazon or whatever. It just gets passed down the way that person wanted. So it's actually completely unearned. Whereas in this case in Iran, like these positions are 100% earned. He had to earn that. Um, anyway, he ends up issuing a declaration uh, against the Shah, the king, and the white revolution. And he decree decrees a, a cancel of one of the most famous and important holidays specific to Iran. It is known as Nowruz, which is the Iranian New Year. He cancels basically New Year's for protest um, and then delivers a speech on the next prominent holiday known as Ashura in 1963. Ashura is a holiday that commemorates, commemorates the um, sacrifice of a... Of a old uh, Shia leader, um, uh, Hussein, when he's martyred. Basically, it's – I don't want to equate it to like a Christmas or anything. It's not like Christmas. It's not like Christmas at all. But 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 it does 
I mean, it's it's like what I suppose Christmas should be, where if you are, a, I guess, a true believer, you're supposed to honor like the sacrifice or whatever. But like, yeah, but in this case, Ashura honors the sacrifice of Hussein. Anyway, he delivers like a fiery speech on this holiday and he compares um, the king to Khalifa Yazid, which long story short, Yazid is the one that ended up killing Hussein all those years way back. Anyway, this garners some even more like popular sentiment. I mean, that was really complicated, and I probably should have just said he got super popular really fast, but whatever. Like, I don't know. Sometimes I get a little too detailed. The king decides he's not going to stand for this. He doesn't want this guy rivaling him in popularity, although the king's not, like, super popular anyway, but he, he doesn't want him rivaling in popularity. So he rolls up with the army, ends up capturing Khomeini, and immediate protests lead to uh, the death of as many as 400 of Khomeini's students, um, and it damages numerous schools in Qom, which is leads to the movement of the 15th of Khordad. The reason I mention that is it's like super controversial to roll into this holy city and these holy schools with like a modern army and basically like desecrate them. So it's not only like the killing of the students, that's a big deal. It's not just the capture of their leader. Um, it's the fact that you like It'd be like if tanks like rolled through the Vatican. Like, does that? I, mean, I don't. I don't know. Does that make sense? No. Yeah, it's hugely symbolic. Yeah, for sure. So it is. It's like a big issue there. He further decrees um, after the capitulations led to his exile. He writes further decrees after capitulations eventually lead to his exile. Well, I always wonder why some of these like famous revolutionary leaders eventually like only get exiled. Like, and it's kind of interesting. Like, it's good for the world that these revolutionary leaders like don't get killed and they're exiled instead. But like, it is kind of weird. Like. I, I think, well, like, if they had killed him, it probably would have been game over immediately because the yeah. public would have rose up. Yeah. While uh, Khomeini was in uh, exile, he spent most of his time in the neighboring country in Iraq in a town called Najaf. But eventually, um, Saddam Hussein, who most Americans know, comes to power and he expels him and he ends up in Paris, France. It's interesting that Saddam expels him because, again, Saddam, for a brief period of time— it wasn't that brief, actually. It was a good chunk of time. It was actually a U.S. ally, believe it or not. And so that's one of the reasons Saddam ends up uh, expelling him. Anyway, while in exile, he produces his most famous work, Hakumat Islami Velayat Ifaki. Um, and again, excuse my pronunciation if it was a little bit off, but in English, that is the Islamic government, governance of the jurist, which eventually would become like the, the, this is like the framework for the society that he would envision. And it becomes his vision once he successfully leads the revolution. So let's talk about his revolution, the famous Islamic revolution of uh, 1979. Uh, basically, the revolution was already underway without him. He was in exile. There was growing unrest in Iran with the foreign influence, um, capitulation laws, the inequality in the market, uh, new socioeconomic inequalities, um, overt secularism, and squashing of tradition, all under the leadership of the king, who was basically like walking lockstep with the United States. This basically led to a whole bunch of uncommon allies coming together and basically saying, look, we don't agree on a lot, but the king's got to go. And what I mean by like uncommon allies, like first and foremost, the religious like leaders. So like the far right of Iran, like they're, they're part of this. They're like, we're done with this shit. But then weirdly enough, the national front who are socialist make a comeback and they're like, we'll work with you on this. And then eventually, um, the two day party, which were communist, they make a comeback and they're like, yeah, we do agree on this one point. The king and the United States, they got to go. And then even a more militant uh, communist uh, fighting group known as the Mojahedin uh, 
Uh, and again, I got that. I'm still struggling with that one. Hulk. Uh, they also eventually decide to join the fray. And they're an interesting group because they actually had um, – they actually would seize brief power in Afghanistan uh, as well um, as a very pro-communist party. Anyway, and the youth. The young would join with this group, both urban and rural. So basically we have like these – five, six, seven different types of populations, all intermingling, all with very different visions of tomorrow, what type of Iran they want, and yet they're all willing to briefly put aside their differences to work for one common goal. The king's got to go, the shah's got to go, and as well as his foreign-like puppeteers, the United States, they got to go. Like, we will no longer answer to anybody else. What do you think of that? Yeah, this is Somewhat common, I think, in revolutions that are successful in overthrowing puppets of foreign countries. We talk about when we teach the Cuban Revolution, the same thing happened in Cuba with the student movements and Castro's movement and so on. And yeah, it's common. Yeah, left, right, center, it doesn't matter. They're all Once going to work you together. have a common enemy that many parties are willing to put aside their differences to target, then you start to build steam. The only symbol that they thought like might be able to unite them though, like at least get the common people, the everyday like non-revolutionary people who are just like whatever sleepwalking through life, which is the vast majority of most populations no matter where you live, um, was Khomeini. So they decide that, that that he does get to call some of the shots here. Um, cassettes of his lectures were being smuggled into the country through the 1970s, which garnered him more like of this like fame, like clandestine, like cool martyr status. Um, and of course it, it is through these cassettes that he's not just advocating against the regime, but he is discussing what his vision is, the governance of the jurist. Um, further, a, uh, a prophecy became popular, like a prophecy from like the eighth century, like going all the way back that stated a man will come from calm and he will summon people to the right path. Like that prophecy started like circulating and people were like making the connections. Oh man, like this Imam from like way back in the day, like prophesized the rise of the Ayatollah Khomeini. Like it's, it's, it's interesting that people kind of like started to look for meaning there. Weirdly enough though, his son, Khomeini's son, Mustafa, was murdered by Savak in 1977, which led to mass protests, as you might imagine. And then the Shah himself recognized Khomeini's popularity was still too popular, was still too big, even though he was out of the country. So he publishes an article. The king himself writes an article called Iran and Red and Black Colonization, um, which is ludicrous that the king wrote this article because it just made the king, the Shah, look like an idiot. Basically, the article, what he, what he means by red and black colonization is that the red is communist and the black is ultra-religious. He's basically saying the Ayatollah is like merging these two horrible things communism and islam and it is going to be these things that like undo everything i've built here it is colonization and it's kind of weird that he calls it colonization since he's answering to the damn united states that's colonization anyway uh the shah at this moment in time had advanced cancer so some people that apologize for the shah writing these dumb articles like this um say it was actually his cancer meds that had kind of like made him a little loopy and he decided to make poor choices i i don't well, i mean let's be honest he didn't write the articles right yeah. there's a whole team of well, people yes. both americans and his own that are doing all of this uh more protests break out uh after this article is published and two more students die and hundreds are injured during these protests the reason I mentioned these two specific deaths is it actually sets a cycle. It, they, there, there is this idea, uh, at least in certain um, forms of martyrdom in Shia Islam, that if a revolutionary, a Shia revolutionary dies, that you are, it is your duty to then protest forty days later um, in remembrance of their martyrdom. 
The reason this is important is 40 days later, a remembrance protest leads to more deaths, which means another 40 days later, there'll be another protest where more people die. And basically now every 40 days, there are these protests. And the king at one point is like, Telling his police and Savak, like, you've got to stop killing people at these protests because, like, or else these protests. Eventually, he fires his leaders of Savak because he's like, you guys cannot control yourselves. Like, stop killing people (laughs) so the protests stop every 40 days. This is getting exhausting. The CIA themselves then come to the king and they're like, basically like, dude, you need to calm down, homie. Like, we've, we've experienced in our 20 years of existence or whatever we've been around at this point so much. And we know all of the tactics of revolutions, and you have nothing to worry. Iran is not remotely in danger of falling to a revolution. The CIA, in all its infinite wisdom. Right. A fire breaks out. It's known as the mysterious Cinema Rex fire. Breaks out, and it actually claims 422 lives um, at this moment in time. And the reason this fire is important is because it's like one of those events where both sides claim the other like caused it. So, like, the king's like, oh, man, the revolutionaries did this. And the revolutionaries like, hell no, you did this. And basically it causes, like, this deep divide. The Cinema Rex fire, though, is is heartbreaking because 422 people died watching a movie. Um, nonstop protests leads to uh, the king naming a new uh, prime minister. His name is Sharif Amami. And they eventually start to rewind some of the westernization. They're realizing that we have to stop doing what we're doing because the people are, hate us. They hate us. Um, but it's too little, too late. On uh, and now another, a third very famous holiday in not just Iran now, the entire Islamic world, Eid, marchers finally call for the return of Khomeini, and the Shah ends up declaring martial law. Black Friday takes place on September 8th of 1978, where 5,000 Iranians march in defiance of the martial law, and a general at the time, a man named Ovesi, opens fire and kills 64 of these protesters in Jale Square. So it's known as Black Friday in Iran, this murdering of these 64 protesters in Jale Square. Khomeini orders that there will now no longer be any negotiation with the current regime. The king himself is actually shocked, too. He's pretty heartbroken that this many people died at the protest, and he orders basically no more soldiers at protests. Like, there will no—so he's he's backing down. He's already backing down. Unity peaks as strikes and boycotts will now be the new tactic of the revolutionaries, and unchecked demonstrations now, because there's no army there— become constant. By October, as many as 10% of the adult population was no longer even working and constantly marching. That doesn't sound like a lot, but think in mind, 10% of the adult population is not doing anything. That That's like a general strike. So your country is doing nothing. Uh, the BBC then, since Khomeini is still in exile and now he's in Paris, the BBC shows up there and interviews him, um, and he becomes a household name around the world. Um, he himself is named, weirdly enough, in the West, because the West seems to hate him now, but Time Magazine Man of the Year in 1979. Super weird. The National Front officially signs an accord to work together with Khomeini and, uh, the clerics. Um, students then go on to, uh, light a whole bunch of shit on fire in Tehran in October of 1979, burning all symbols of foreign influence. So if you're like anything that's a symbol of foreign influence, it was burned. Basically, they're tired of being under foreign influence. The Muharram protests follow that up, um, led heavily by the women of Iran movement 
Um, and eventually the Shah is forced to flee. I mean, a whole bunch of other protests take place, but basically the revolutionaries are able to win nonviolently. Like the Iranian revolution was not violent. There's no, this isn't the Cuban revolution led by like Castro or something. This is a, a nonviolent revolution. The only violence was on the side of the regime. The Shah ends up fleeing in January of 1979 and the Ayatollah comes home. He begins, once he makes his way home, he begins the process of negotiating um, though violence eventually breaks out between what would become two competing governments, his government, the governance of the jurists, and then a government that is more republican in nature, uh, led by the prime minister at the time, a man named Bakhtiar. And it's interesting to note that this competition leads to basically PR campaigns by both Khomeini and the prime minister. Um, and it's where he gives one of his more famous speeches. Um, I'm going to read an excerpt here, um, which eventually kind of, uh, it's what wins the day for Khomeini. And it's why eventually Iran falls under the rule of the Islamic revolutionary government and not the Republican style government is because Khomeini eventually won the side of the army. The army chooses him. And that means what he says now goes. He says, we want our army to be independent. You army commanders, you generals and major generals, do you not wish to be independent? What is our reward for saying that we would like our army to be independent? It is right to punish us by killing your young men in the street just because we wish you to be your own master rather than taking orders from foreign powers? At this point, I would like to thank those units of the army which have joined the ranks of the nation. We praise the NCOs, the Air Force, and officers of the Air Force who are ready with us and call upon the rest of you to join. Abandon your foreign masters and do not fear that if you abandon them, we will come and hang you. Such rumors are spread by your enemies. Can you not see your other comrades, the officers, the NCOs, and the pilots who have joined us? We love them. We respect them, and we want to keep our strong army intact. We want to have a powerful country. We want to preserve the structure of the army, but for the service of the nation. What type of ethos do you see him, and even pathos, do you see him building in that like excerpt? Nick? Yeah, that's a lot of rhetoric of basically... I mean, the military themselves have been the tool of the imperial regime for a while now. And so he's even promising them escaping from that. On April 1st of 1979, he's won enough support that the Islamic Republic of Iran is declared as the official new government of Iran. And Bakhtiari and all other opposition has to back down. In terms of the immediate aftermath, um, I haven't been overtly critical of Iran yet, but I, I, I probably need to be a little bit critical here. The consolidation is not peaceful. Um, like after any revolution, it is ugly. Uh, in fact, former leftist allies like the Two-Day Party or the Moshahideen Hikok, um, they are marginalized or forced into exile. Many of them end up in Iraq. Um, there is a swift and and honestly um invasive desecularization of society um one of the greatest like sources on this here in the west uh is actually a a graphic novel turned film by Marjan Satrapi and and her eyewitness account as a young girl like what this was like um living through this quick transition and it wasn't always good um he instituted uh Khomeini instituted the Valiat Efaki, which is like the rule of jurisprudence. It becomes enforced. That is enforced through a couple of interesting institutions that are established. The first is a formation of what is called committees, or just in English committees, that would be manned by um, Basij, which are like super young men that have never really had any like strong position of power. They're like overtly like right-leaning and religious and you give these young men that have felt oppressed and angry and you give them guns and tell them they get to basically decide what is right and wrong in a society that just is never 
that never is going to go well. I mean, it's just not. And it didn't. It did not go well. And most of us know if you were a woman, it went really poorly. Um, now, I mean, the good news is over time, it's not the way it was right after the revolution. But we must say that the revolution, this did happen. This did happen. By the way, the name of the graphic novel turned film is Persepolis. You didn't mention its actual name. Oh, shit. So anyway, uh, the Revolutionary Guard is formed at this moment in time. The now famous, because of recent event, Al-Quds Force would eventually be uh, uh, formed during this period of time. Um, and many secularists and Westerners are are kind of forced to flee. Um, it's... It, it, it is a very controversial, it's even in my own opinion, um, that has like family that both left and still lives like through this process. Like it is a super controversial time. Like on one way you celebrate the liberation and independence of the country from foreign occupation now that as we've discussed in this long, long episode at this point, um, has lasted for, for a hundred, 150 years. But then you see the kind of very, ah, immediate implementation of things that maybe should have taken a little bit more time and thoughtfulness um, causing suffering in its own right um, immediately after the revolution. It is a very controversial time period. I will say, and this must be like... Although we talk about this in the revolutions class, that this is like, I don't know if there's ever a true revolution where this hasn't happened. That's not to dismiss any of the suffering and the atrocities that were committed, but after every single legitimate revolution, there is some period where the whoever's the successful party at gaining power must somehow eradicate all of the other parties that may potentially threaten them. Oh yeah, I mean, and 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 our our listeners know that have that have listened to our other series, Myth is America. Know, believe it or not, the United States again, your own founders did this very same thing immediately after their successful war against England. They consolidated power and uh, forced a whole lot of people into compromising situations, and a lot of people suffered because of the choices that they were making as well. So yes, that it is common after successful uh, revolutions or wars for independence. I guess, um. An interesting – there's a quote that kind of like – that describes this, I guess, this feeling that, that people of any Iranian heritage have about this time period um, that that I think kind of colors it pretty well. It's by a the author, Human Majd, in his work, The Ayatollah Begs to Differ. He had this to say about the revolution. He says, Iranians overthrew a 2,500-year monarchy in 1979 to liberate themselves from an autocratic dictator, as well as to liberate themselves from foreign domination, a factor that most in the West did not understand at the time, and that was also partly the motivation for the takeover of the U.S. Embassy. And for almost 30 years now, whatever can be said about Iran, it cannot be said that it is subservient to any greater power, that anything Iran does now, that's what he's saying, no matter what we can say, for all the faults or hang-ups of the current regime or the post-revolutionary regime, one thing that can definitely not be said is Iran answers to nobody but Iran now. And very few countries in the world can say that. And that sets the table for, I mean, up into this day, Iran's relationship with other countries like the United States. Um, I mean, a lot of people like to talk about uh, the, the, uh, one of the post-revolutionary processes, the, host the hostage crisis. I'll, I'll just mention it super briefly since I do think most of our listeners are aware of it. But it, 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 it takes place during this time, started in November of 1979 and lasted 444 days. Uh, Americans lost their collective minds over this. Like, oh, my God, how dare they seize this, like, embassy? Like, you held the country hostage for, like, three decades. <laughs> the fuck out of here. Anyway... 
it wasn't even under Khomeini's orders at first. It was students that just decided to do this. Um, and, uh, and, uh, you know, I don't advocate for holding anyone hostage, but I mean, it is kind of weird. It's like the pot calling the kettle black, but it, you know, whatever. I, I, I'm kind of a moral absolutist in this regard. Like you shouldn't do this on either side. But anyway, it lasts for 444 days. And the original request of the people holding the embassy was like, Hey man, like our king fled and he eventually ended up in your country. Will you send him back so he can face charges for all his crimes against us? And the Jimmy Carter administration decided that wasn't going to be a thing. And then and the Shah, the king, had cancer anyway, so he ends up dying. And then we're at an impasse. Was he in the U.S.? Yeah, he start, He went originally went to Cairo and hung out with Anwar Sadat in Egypt, and then he eventually ends up in the United States hmm, I didn't uh, know that. for treatments. Yeah, so and that's what they want. That's why they wanted him back. They're like, send him back, and like we'll free your hostages. And it never happened. And then he dies, and then it's like, oh. <laughs> We're at an impasse. Um, there's the failed operation to like free those hostages known better as Operation Argo or made famous by the awful Ben Affleck movie Argo. Um, anyway, that takes place. Uh, and eventually, of course, big bad Ronnie Reagan shows up and guarantees he can handle the situation. And in a way, he kind of does. He gets the hostages freeze. But but what people don't know are all the other dirty things happening under the table that also facilitated that, which culminate in later on the uh, – uh, the Iran-Contra affair. I'm not going to do that right this second. Um, Iran then institutes a new constitution. I don't know how in-depth I should go here. As like I said, I know this episode's already getting kind of long, but I know our listeners might be super interested to understand roughly how Iran works. So essentially, there is an assembly of experts that created the constitution. The Ayatollah did not create the constitution. It is an assembly of experts, other Ayatollahs that come from Qom, who all achieved their status, again, democratically, if you really think about it. They end up outlining uh, a board that attempted to intersect theocracy and democracy. There is definitely no separation of church and state. No one's saying that. That is not a thing in Iran. They want to actually intersect them. So it is the theocratic and democratic governments working together. The theocratic government led by the Supreme Ayatollah, which at that time was Khomeini, now Khamenei. Um, and then below them, the assembly of experts and at his disposal, the revolutionary guard. That's like one like main factor. But then there's like another part of the Iranian government that looks an awful lot like a Western government with a president and a majlis. And, um, there is no like specific separate, um, judicial branch because the, uh, because of Sharia law, that's actually decided by the assembly of experts as well. Um, and that other theocratic form of government. But there is like, again, these like two different governments working. It's, they're like synthesized. They like intersect. I don't know if I'm explaining that well, but you can, I mean, if you're at home and you really are curious, just Google it. Like there's a cool, like little graph you can find on Google images that kind of shows how the theocratic and democratic governments intersect. I will say this though, for people that kind of were freaking out about like maybe some very vocal presidents uh, in Iran's history, like Ahmadinejad or maybe now Rouhani, who's actually pretty moderate. They do still technically not have the end all authority. That still goes all the way on up. So like a major decision, like conflict with the United States or UK or something like that, that would still go through the Ayatollah. So I don't know. I mean, does that make sense to you, Nick? I know you're not like an expert on this, but anyway, it's not a complete like dictatorship as people think. It's actually both theocratic and democratic, if that makes sense, especially democratic when it comes to people's like everyday lives. Um, 
here's the thing that I really want to like drive home here that 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 kind of pivots this revolution, really um, taking on some of more, uh, its more harsh realities. It's the United States' fault there too, guys. You see, we don't know how this whole revolution may or may not have played out. What guarantees the revolution um, goes the way of the Islamic Republic is the fact that after the revolution, the United States, feeling a little bit sad and butthurt, decides, hey, our buddy, England's buddy next door in Iraq, Saddam Hussein, I bet if we gave him some money and weapons, we could ask him to invade, and we know he super wants to invade already, and maybe, like, uh, you know, cause enough problems there that it delegitimizes the revolution. And that's what happens. The United States arms and funds Saddam Hussein in 1980 to invade Iran. And since, as I had already mentioned, the Ayatollah now had the support of the army, the only thing the people could count on to protect them from Saddam Hussein was the Ayatollah. So that's one of the reasons he garnered even more support after the revolution is because he's the only one that could protect them from the Iraqi invasion. Why don't people learn that? Yeah, I don't know. The CIA didn't learn any of their lessons during this time period, clearly. Yeah. Yeah, they also gave Saddam this uh, interesting um, tool that he would use, not just on Iranians, but his own people and the Kurds. uh, You know, gas. Anyway, crimes against humanity. Not cards, crimes. Um, Anyway, Saddam's invasion actually was what consolidated the power for the revolution. People had to turn to somebody to protect them from the Iraqi invasion, and uh, they turned to the Ayatollah. So it's one of the other ways that he was able to implement uh, his way of doing things, and the Basij were able to get away with doing some of the very questionable things that they were doing um, to the populace. Unfortunately, we also have to feel a little bit bad for the Basij as well because the Basij would be used as martyrs in the war. See, the Basij were unfortunately – usually sent uh, to the front lines and were forced to run out into like minefields to find like mines and stuff. And all they were promised was like a key to heaven. Like I said, this part of the war or and the revolution gets kind of, it's super messy and you can't kind of support policies. You can't remotely support policies like that. That war lasts until 1988. And again, one of the things I just mentioned is that Iraq was supported by the United States in the Iran-Iraq war that lasts again between 1980 and 88, one of the bloodiest wars of the 20th century. Millions died. Iran would also eventually be supported by the United States, which is interesting. You see, under the table, Iran had began to purchase U.S. missiles to defend itself from Iraq. Now, why would the United States play place play both sides of this war? They're overtly funding and helping Saddam Hussein, and then they're uh, subversively funding, or not in this case funding, excuse me, just arming Iran to defend itself from Iraq. So basically, they're playing both sides, hoping for what, Nick? Their, their goal is mutual destruction. Yeah, the United States is playing dirty here. They want mutual destruction. They want to create a power vacuum here that they, of course, can fill. They make this decision not initially. It happens later because Iran is able to help them with another hostage crisis somewhere else in the world. In Lebanon, um, hostages have been taken by Hezbollah, which Hezbollah answers to Iran. Basically, they are, they are a Shia um, uh, group that answers to Iran. Um, I will not call them terrorists or anything like that. They're fighting for what they believe in. Um, they uh, end up taking hostages, and Iran is able to pressure them into releasing these hostages. In return, Iran gets to buy U.S. weapons. Oh, but the story does not end there. The money used to buy those weapons 
is then funneled by the United States to Nicaragua to fund Contras there to overthrow another democratically elected government, the Sandinista government in Nicaragua. This is what comes to be known as the Iranian hostage crisis. No, excuse me. Wow, there's too many crises. This becomes known as the uh, 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 Contra Contra Affair, uh, the Iranian-Contra Affair, where, again, money is taken from selling uh, weapons to Iran to fight Saddam Hussein, who they also armed, and that money is then funneled to Nicaragua to fund Contras to overthrow a democracy in Nicaragua. This is all done at the executive level of governance. This is the type of thing that the Ronald Reagan administration engaged in. And here's the problem, guys. All of that was illegal, not just on an international scale, but on a national scale. You see, Congress had passed legislation making both of those actions, interceding in Iran and Nicaragua in the ways that Reagan had done, they passed legislation making that illegal. What that essentially means is the Ronald Reagan administration committed high treason against its own country. I will say it one more time. Among the many horrific things Ronald Reagan did was commit high treason against his own country through the Iran-Contra affair. What are your thoughts, Nick? <sighs> I mean, are you going to talk about why he was never convicted for this? Oh, yeah. Well, Ollie North took the fall. Yeah, and then so Ollie- Oliver North took the fall as the military leader. And then by the time people got around to thinking about actually investigating and charging Reagan himself, he was already deep into uh, Alzheimer's at that point and then ended up dying. I mean, the man should have been like, I mean, that's like jail time. Yeah, this isn't even like conspiracy theory. If you've never heard of this, like there's no doubting. I mean, American Dad did an episode on it. Yeah, there's no Mm -hmm. doubting that this happened, that Reagan did this. This is well-documented and well-known. I mean, it's little known, I think, in the American public, but it's well-known that this they did this. This isn't like a conspiracy or something. This is for sure. Uh, doubling down on horrific U.S. interventions uh, during the Iran-Iraq war is towards the end of that war. Again, millions die because of the mutual destruction uh, supported by the United States at this moment in time. Um, the United States accidentally shot down an Iranian passenger airliner, better known as Iranian Air Flight 655. That took place on July 3rd of 1988. Um, 290 uh, citizens died on that flight, Um, which, again, is... I do believe in this case, for the United States purposes, it was a mistake. I don't think you intentionally shoot down an airliner. I think they did maybe think it was an actual fighter jet, and that's fine, but... Again, this type of like meddling in the region and this conflict, these are the things that like happen as asides that, you know, people don't give enough attention to. Again, I don't think the United States did that by on purpose by any stretch of the imagination um, or this specific – I forget which – what the name of the, the the boat. It was shot down by a, by a battleship. But regardless, um, I don't think it was done intentionally. But it did happen and it's something that we probably should remember is the, the shooting down of Flight 655. Um. But from that point forward, um, the end of the Iran-Iraq war um, kind of normalized things a little bit between – it didn't normalize things. But basically after the Iran-Iraq war, Saddam Hussein uh, ends up kind of having to go back to Iraq with his tail between his legs. He then there begins to consolidate more power and challenge his own like U.S. support there and makes a poor choice of his own, which then like turns the U.S. attention away from Iran altogether and towards Iraq. Um 
which kind of makes Iran and the United States like weird. I don't think they're like connected allies, but both of them hated Saddam Hussein mm-hmm. at that point in time. And Saddam Hussein made a poor choice by invading Kuwait that, you know, they could share intel and information. And I'm willing to bet under the table they kind of did. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, and so eventually the Gulf War breaks out and we do know the United States um, succeeds in pushing Saddam Hussein back to Iraq. Um, and then uh, as far as U.S. interests are concerned in the region, the, basically the rest of the 90s, they're more focused on what's going on with the Saddam Hussein regime than they are with what's going on in Iran. And that's when Iran begins to like, again, calm down on some more of the very overt rule of jurisprudence stuff and begins to – they don't secularize. I would never say that. But it becomes a lot looser than – Many people imagine it actually is. I mean, for I mean, seventy percent of the you know university students are like women and things like that. People think like uh, everybody's there as a press. No, this is not the case. Things are loosened up quite a bit. The economy begins to grow based on, of course, oil sales, not to the United States, but to China and Russia, who become very prominent allies to this day of Iran. Something to think about. Um, and uh, and Iran again becomes much more finally after like this long process of its revolution and it's it becomes independent it becomes autonomous it gets to do what it wants to do, um and one of the things it decides it wants to do to maybe I don't know help bring it into the 21st century is to develop nuclear power, and they feel they have every right to do so. Uh, they don't feel like it is anyone's right to say they cannot have nuclear power. And if a, a side of that, if a byproduct of that is nuclear weapons, who is anyone else to decide? What are your thoughts on that? The hypocrisy of the world powers that have nuclear weapons to think that they get to decide who isn't allowed to have nuclear weapons is just ridiculous. Yeah. So from Iran's point of view, let me be blunt, listeners. Um, only one country in human history has ever used nuclear weapons on a civilian population. Only one country was crazy enough, irresponsible enough. To use nuclear weapons on a civilian population, and that is the United States, so they do not have the moral or ethical wherewithal to dictate to anybody who gets to have nuclear weapons. It's that simple. So, from that point forward, Iran decides it is going to try and develop that. Obviously, this causes... Uh, a hubbub in the Western world, like, oh my God, they're so out there and crazy and not responsible enough. We don't want them to have these kinds of capabilities. Again, who does the West to say? I mean, we've talked about it already in this podcast. Is, was was it Iran that started World War One, killed millions of its own people? Was it Iran that committed the Holocaust? Was it Iran that uh, launched uh, bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Was it Iran that colonized the United States or Great Britain or Russia? It's no to all of those. Who is not responsible enough at this point? Who are we kidding here, people? Iran works on its nuclear program, and um, they're able to take information from allies, maybe Russians or the Chinese. They're also able to take stuff they used to have when America was there and reverse engineer it, things things ranging from, like, infrastructure on oil derricks to F-14 Tomcats. I mean, all of this stuff is used. Um, the Iranian people, again, being one of the oldest groups of people on in human, er- on human history, are pretty... Uh, Pretty resourceful. Let's just say that. So, sanctions. The sanctions come down hard from the West, and they are supported by the United States, and then, of course, all the United States uh, NATO allies, North Atlantic Treaty Organization allies. What are they sanctioning? Well, they're trying to apply economic pressure for a political goal in this case, to get Iran to stop enriching uranium and seeking to develop its uh, uh, nuclear prowess uh, for the benefit of Iranians. And so, again, this is violence. It might not be the same violence of, like, funding Saddam Hussein to go invade, but this is still violence. What you're doing is you're with 
this is economic violence. You're withholding things that other people have access to, like medicine. People are dying. There are very simple diseases because the West refuses to act, give them access to this medicine, even if they can purchase it. Because of these sanctions, because you don't want the government developing nuclear power, you're willing to let people die. When your own government already has nuclear weapons. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Why the hypocrisy of Americans here? And Brits. I and mean, if the you, French. If and anyone the has listened to the Myth is America series, you know that this country is founded on hypocrisy. So it should be no surprise. Uh, another interesting event that many of you are, uh, unaware of regarding recent developments in Iran, um, was, uh, well, I think most people are aware of the Green Revolution. So this podcast and myself and Nick have mixed feelings on the uh, Islamic regime. We, it's complicated. Let's just say that. Love the fact that they were able to create an autonomous country. Still feel like they're a little bit heavy-handed with their dealings with their own people. By like, yes, way heavy-handed. So in that spirit, the Iranian revolutionary ethos sprang up again in 2008 with the Green Revolution. And in that case, the Islamic Revolutionary Government came down heavy-handed on its own people. And for that, it must be called out. Um, it was during the re-election of Ahmadinejad, um, who was not the most um, popular leader. Well, he's a populist leader, but very far right-leaning populist leader when they had just spent in the 90s under more um, – what would I say? I don't want to say left-leaning. No such real thing in modern Iranian politics. But let's just say more moderate, a more moderate leadership throughout the 90s. So anyway, uh, this re-election led to protests, which would be the Green Revolution, which was doused and uh, violently. I, I cannot say it any other way. It was doused violently by the current regime. The United States um, voiced, at least from an outside, advocacy for the revolutionaries, but this is where it comes into play for uh, listeners that might be curious as to how uh, Iranian revolutionaries that want to maybe change their current regime feel about the West. It's it, They don't want help, at least most of them, at least that, that I, I would imagine they wouldn't want help because at this point, any intervention by the West comes with strings attached. I mean, think about the fact that they would choose a dictatorial regime – I mean, most of them, right? We're speaking for them, but versus overthrowing that with U.S. help because they do not want to deal with the ramifications of, again, allying yeah, with the United States. Yeah, if you're States. choosing between the better option for Iranians, it is still the Islamic Revolutionary Government by the widest of margins. And I don't even want to call that dictatorial. It's, it's just not. more heavy-handed than – It's a yeah. synthesis, like I said, of theocracy and democracy. And it's actually become less and less heavy-handed over time. But there's a lot of nuance there. Further, I think uh, it would behoove us to mention that uh, U.S. invasions or violence doesn't uh, end with just military uh, or political or, in the case of sanctions, economic conquest. Uh, we've taken this to the Internet as well. Operation Olympic Games. Um, have you heard of Operation Olympic Games? No, I'll just say no. You've never heard of Operation Olympic Games? I've heard that term and I know about the hacking scandal, but I don't know any of the details. Okay, so really, 2012, 2013, this is another secret operation um, by the United States. I don't know that it's specifically CIA in this case. It may or may not be. We might have to look up those details, but it doesn't matter. Operation Olympic Games is the launching of a, a worm program known as Stuxnet. The United States launches this, um, this cyber warfare into Iran, and uh, essentially it is meant to compromise the nuclear program. So they launch this, this, this like worm, and I'm not, Nick knows, listeners probably know at this point, I'm a 
technophobe at this point. So I, I'm, I'm going to be speaking out my ass a little bit here on how it actually works. <laughs> but essentially what it does is it compromises the ability for them to enrich uranium by attacking the centrifuges, I believe, or like what they're called. They speed them up or they make it like irregular and it destabilizes the enrichment of uranium. That's essentially what this worm, this, pro- this computer program does. So this is cyber warfare. This is an invasion. This is compromising um, the, so- uh, uh, the sovereign nature of Iran. What do you think of that? I mean, yeah, the United That's States... That's under the Obama administration. Oh, yeah. The United States just cannot leave this area alone. They like, will it, not stop fucking no. meddling. Yeah. I mean, They I, will not stop meddling. Nope. Funny thing is, uh, Iran caught it, reverse engineered it, and fired it back. They didn't fire it back at, like, American, like, um, nuclear facilities. They, they knew that probably would have caused a little bit more problems than they were willing to take on at that moment in time. But they fired it back in certain regards at a few tourist destinations. Um, and so like now, uh, that means that like other people have this, this worm, this Stuxnet that could destabilize, um, um, entire systems, energy producing systems. I'm willing to bet other types of systems, whatever, like, you know, whatever you need. So that's now like, that's, that's in Iran's wheelhouse, and I'm willing to bet whoever else Iran's allies are. And now it's in American. Al- so all everybody now has access to this 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 Stuxnet type of program because Americans could not just leave well enough alone. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Which brings us up. I mean, more or less. I mean, there was a there was a, uprisings last year in Iran that were also um, seeking much more uh, uh, liberalist society. Um, and Rouhani himself, the current president of of iran is much more moderate than his predecessor and iran is definitely um i mean moving in directions that we would think that we want to move them in like signing a nuclear deal with the obama regime out even after the whole nightmare of stuxnet they signed this this deal basically removing the sanctions and will start doing things for our nuclear program the way you want and here's the funny thing third party people oversaw this and iran was following all they were compliant. They were 100% compliant. And listeners all know what happened next. 2016 rolls around. And uh, for some reason, a new executive takes hold in the United States. And that deal is thrown in the trash. Uh, because we all feel like we need to be tough guys. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where we stand right now. What do you think? Oh, it's such a complicated and long history. And like you said, they just cannot leave well enough alone. Like Trump comes into office and just basically throws out the deal that was agreed upon. And I mean, here we are, you know, like it's so easy to sympathize with the Iranian side of the U.S.-Iranian conflict every time. I mean, the lesson of this long, long episode uh, regarding the 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries for Iran, at least in terms of like, you know, foreign relations and stuff, is to is to really drive home the idea that they're, the West continues to meddle, and they continue to meddle without even knowing their own history of what has transpired, um, and, and without any empathy or understanding of the Iranian perspective, or any respect for the Iranian perspective, which is interesting because, again, I'll be blunt, West— you wouldn't exist without the Iranian people. There would be no Western civilization without Iranians. And I think your point is key that most people don't know any anything of this history. And uh, the, the common person, if we did like a you know man in the street thing, is like they couldn't find it on a map. Well, no, for sure. And it would be like you know Iranians are like radical Islamic country that wants to d- destroy the United States. And you're like. What? Iran attempted democracy at least three times in the 20th century, and it was the West. Like, they legit just want to be left alone. That's it. 
operate on a geopolitical scale as respected and equal to any other nation. Not better than, like a couple of countries I know, equal to. Mm -hmm. These are not like ridiculous requests. Yeah. You have any closing thoughts for us as a sociologist? Because, I mean, I gave, I just went through like this super long-winded history. I have no idea how long this episode is now, but whatever. I think that Iran plays the role of the like scary other a lot of the time right now in like modern U.S. history. It plays that role really easily because you can throw around the term nuclear weapon and people are terrified being the public, I mean. And there's not a lot of other countries that can do that in a way that's as uncomplicated. Maybe North Korea is up there, too. I think those are the two really kind of scapegoats now. When we need some big other to scare the American public and keep us in line, we can point to those two. And But most people don't know the complex histories of either of those countries, but definitely not Iran. There are very few smaller nations around the world that have successfully given the middle finger of the United States successfully and, and, and created their own autonomous nation for better or worse. Iran is one of those. No. And I think that's one of the main reasons that they, yeah, it's like a burr in the side of the United States that this little tiny country has told us to fuck off for so long. (laughs) And like, they just want to do something like it. They just can't let it go. Cuba too is one of those. Yeah, Yeah. They just can't let it go. Yeah. It's almost like the Bay of Pigs. Like, they just cannot let, stop meddling and trying to just... Well, hopefully... Uh, well, let's... and honestly, like, even the fact, like, well, yeah, they we can't let them have a nuclear program because they'll use the nuclear weapons on us. Well, if you just fucking leave them alone, like, that's all that they want. They're not just for, like, no reason, let's bomb the United States. Like, it's... The, no yeah, one does that. Yeah, no one wakes up one day and they're like, we hate America's freedom. Nobody does that. The reason we decided to do this episode specifically on Iran is to show the very rich history of Western and then later just American meddling in this specific region. No one wakes up one morning just randomly mad at the United States because you have the freedom to go buy a Toyota, eat a Big Mac, um, and whatever. You know, I don't even know what else we do. Shove as much Fortnite into your brain as you want. Which no, I think no, is funny because no one cares Iranians about that. can do that exact same yeah. thing. No, no <laughs> one wants to take that from you people. Well, I think that whole narrative of like, they hate us because they want what we have. Like, that's so absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> because either those countries already have what we have, or they want nothing to do with what we have. And that's why they're pissed. Yeah, I don't think anyone wants like, ma- like mass obesity problems, uh, mass shootings every other week. I mean, like, yeah, like, whatever. Everything that Iran wants that we have, they already have. Yeah. And the rest, they just don't want anything to do with. Oh, they do have that free college and comprehensive healthcare thing going on, though. Yeah, weird. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Hmm. Anyway, we're, we're getting, we're getting long in the tooth here. Listeners, hopefully like this episode, uh, just kind of gives you a, a window. The goal of this was to like speak to like the very rich history of the last eh, century, century and a half of, of Iran. Um, and to hopefully like educate on the complications, the nuance, um, perhaps inform a little bit about the ethos, uh, of, of, of a place that I am uh, super connected to, um, culturally, and through family. Obviously, I, I I have my own mixed feelings there. I can't go there for a whole host of different reasons. I've never been there. I've been here and it's 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 a complicated story. Um but but it is something that like, you know, just like for uh I know uh Americans of like Irish heritage to just kind of feel this like connectivity to maybe a little bit of their Celtic or Catholic roots or something. It's kind of similar in that regard. Like I can't identify as like I'm like an Iranian. I'm not. I'm not. I'm, I'm born here. I'm, you know, whatever, American citizen. It's it is what it is, but like 
you know, there is this, this kind of like connectivity in a certain way. So we wanted to, we really wanted to kind of provide that information, um, and education and hopefully you all, and this is important, um, for me really can spread, like disseminate some of this information because the West is just super ignorant. There, the West is ignorant on a lot of topics, but this one in particular is just nauseating um, i say even like the entire middle east this, yeah that's so important in well we, global we context realized that and, with our Kurd, our episodes uh, on yeah. the kurds that we did you know mm-hmm. last year or whatever like it just yeah anyway um uh, thank you all for listening um nick's gonna close us out yeah check us out online revolution ideology.com if you like what you're doing what we are doing you can support us on patreon we're at patreon.com slash revolution and ideology we have a YouTube channel where we post all of our episodes and some other videos there. Uh, we're on Twitter at Rev and Ideology. Until next time, I'm Nick. I'm Jared. Later.